everybody, I'm Robert Cannon, and this is Figure of Speech, a podcast dedicated to the impact of forensics. Episode 19, Bill Eddy. Bill, welcome in. Nice to have you here. Thanks, Robert. It's a real pleasure to be here. Bill, uh, tell me, do you remember what years you competed? What, what years were you active? Oh, wow. Well, you know, I came back to forensics after quite a while when I was in the Navy, but I was in the 1986 club at Mount Hood Community College up in Portland, Oregon. Wow. And so I competed at a couple of tournaments, and then I went into the military sometime after that. And then when I came out of the military, that was around 2000, 2001, uh, that I had been out of the military for a few years, and then I decided to go back to school. And so I competed in 2001, 2000, 2001. You might have the longest break and, and still being an active member in forensics yet. So, uh, so tell me about it. Let, let's get started. How did you begin in, in speech and debate? How did, how did, where does your journey start? It starts when I'm in high school. I'm a sophomore in high school, and I'm being recruited by the speech coach to join the forensics team. Uh-huh. And so I said, it sounds like a nice activity to be a part of. And so I decided to go ahead and do it. And then the nice thing was is that they moved me into a different class, and then it was more like you would see in the college, the community college experience I had, where we would just get together and we would brainstorm and you really didn't have a structured class experience. So it was great. Mm. I went from a super structured listening to all these people give point on speeches to, hey, let's just all hang out and be friendly. And I just met a whole new group of people. Oh, wow. And so <clears throat> how did they get you to going into to competitions? How did that what was that like? You know, you, you meet these people and they're they're going to competitions. What was your first one like? Well, the first time, and this is going back a while, so I'm trying to remember, it may not be precise. I was a little bit of a rebellious youth. Mm-hmm. And so what happened is I decided I liked a more, I liked the events more than I should have, and I signed up for more events than I was supposed to. <laughs> I actually just walked in and just started performing. And so what my first event that I competed in was Humorous Interp. I was walking by and I heard people being humorous and I said, well, I can do that. So I just recited Gilligan's Island from whatever memory I had and I would just do the voices of different people. I would mix in some Three Stooges voices to just kind of make it balanced out. And I just do some Stooges and or Gilligan's Island and I got an award, you know, (laughs) and I was only signed up for one event. It was debate Mm -hmm. and I got two or three uh, performance awards because I just walked in and started performing. So you didn't even sign up at the tur- before the tournament? You just were there and you just said, I'm going to do this? Yeah. That's yeah. So I just funny. walked by the room and I saw people having a good time. So I went in and said, and they said, who are you? And I said, well, I'm Bill Eddy. And they're like, okay, great. What school do you go to? And they didn't have a ballot for me. So they're just filling out a ballot right on the spot. And they turned in the ballots. <laughs> so And they I, must have just thought, well, somebody forgot to register him. Yeah. You know, so funny. And now I'm a little bit devious because I know by round three, you know, that I, that I, yeah. But when I walked by, I very innocently thought I can do that. And I walked in, they asked who I was. I told them and I said, you're up next. Is that okay? And so sure. (laughs) So I, that was my first competition experience. That's Uh, so great. (laughs) And you know, this is, you, you said 1986. No, that's college. This was 1982. 82. That's in high school. Yeah. All right. So you. You walk in, you're, I guess you're a freshman at that point. Freshman or sophomore, yeah. So I think I'm sophomore, so maybe I'm 15, maybe. Okay, and so walk us through. What, what do you remember about your high school experiences? Your, how was high school? I mean, obviously I want to start asking you what are the differences between high school then and high school now? 
But yeah, what are I your memories about early high school, 1980s competition? When I was competing in that time, it was a fun activity for the smart kids of your school. Mm. And so I think I, in those days I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder. And so I would uh, think, you know, you're not as smart as you pretend to be, you know. And so maybe I just had a little bit of that counterculture kind of attitude. Well, it turns out I'm not that unique. A lot of the people that were also like that were in the on the speech team. And I just found that uh, people, the smart people, that's what they did. And even if you're kind of thinking it's not cool to act all that smart mm-hmm. with all the performance things and the informative speeches and all the different types of speeches, there's just something for anybody and it was a really fun activity. So it's just not an activity that I ever diminished or put down. And I was a thespian at the time too. So I was also a part of the drama club. And so it's just a real natural fit. Did you, had you done theater before you were a freshman in high school? Had you had experience no, doing the, some theatrical stuff? It was both were in high school. So I joined the theater in high school as a freshman and I joined speech and debate as a sophomore. So the being on as part of the drama club and there were people that did speech but i didn't associate that because i always thought of that as the smart kids club mm. and then the drama there's not about smart or not smart it was about a different kind of culture just people that had the talent to act or they had the presence and you just can recognize the kind of person that has that presence and they just want to get on the stage and they want to perform yeah. and so i walked by the theater and they're playing freeze tag and that's just a great uh, you know, uh, for thespians, it's just a fun game. You freeze, you walk onto the stage, and you just, whatever they were doing, now they're all going to respond to your cues, and then someone else is going to yell freeze. And then, So I walk by, and someone yelled freeze, so I freeze. I'm not part of it. And I'm looking outside, and I, oh, what a fun concept. And then from the door, you Sounds know. like it's a good recruitment tool as well. It seemed like it, because they left the door open. There. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so and I looked in, and, I, and so then I yelled freeze. And then I ran all the way down the auditorium, like all the way to the stage, up onto the stage, and then people responding to things I wanted to do. And, and so it was just really fun to be able to be a part of that type of acting experience. And mm-hmm. then it just seemed, remember, I walked by a humorous interp. Oh, I can do that. And it's just kind of the same thing. Oh, that looks interesting. Let's give that a try. It turns out it's great. And so I stayed with thespians. I stayed with uh, forensics. You know, <clears throat> I, you that doesn't surprise me, any of the stuff that you just said, because I've always known you to be... Um, someone who's a bit of a maverick, but yet still understands the the rules and and what like what the community of speech and debate really is quote unquote supposed to be. Like you play within the sandbox, but you are someone who pushes those boundaries, and I've always liked that. I remember the first time I ever met you was at the uh, the Griffin. Um, uh, I was about to say a uh, uh, Griffith Observatory, the Griffin uh, tournament. What's the the one in, in San Diego? San Diego, yeah. it's the Griffin, right? I think so, yeah. And you were judging <clears throat> a final round, and you might have even judged me in a prelim, but I remember specifically you in the final round. I remember it was a a DI round, and it was really really packed. There were a lot of people in there, and I was doing something that was very zany and silly and funny and you you wrote it was a full page ballot they weren't the half sheets you wrote a full page not just on the bottom of the ballot but on the back and it was completely covered with ink and i remember the rest of the judges and everyone was kind of waiting for you to to write and you knew it you knew other people were waiting for you but you didn't let that intimidate you from writing the comments that you wanted to write and i remember thinking this guy is really cool, and he's really giving some very detailed 
interesting notes. And I remember going back to those notes, not just that year, but in subsequent years, going back to that ballot and going, there's some really good material in here that followed me through to other speeches, subsequent speeches that I would perform. That's really nice of you to say, because we want to make a difference, I think, in the community. Yeah. And when you transition out of competition into judging, I'm going to use a debate comparison for a moment, but it's really difficult to resist the temptation to compete from the back of the room where people are making arguments and mm -hmm. instead of evaluating the quality of the argument or the interaction and trying to make the best ballot, the best feedback that I can, I might have this temptation to say, to try to rebuttal what they're saying. And, and right. take, there's this transition. And I knew about this because I was a little bit older when I came back from having a Navy career and then uh, going into forensics. As a judge, I wanted to be someone who gave meaningful feedback. And uh, that's why I filled out that ballot so much because I had a lot of things to say. I knew people were watching me. I knew I was taking more time than I'm supposed to, but I did the best I could to fill it out as quickly as I can, but I didn't want to diminish the quality. Otherwise I could have just written the five or six best sentences I could. And I'd say probably the judge I am today, I'm probably less maverick and I probably do try to give you my best five to 10 sentences as opposed to the page and a half, because at that tournament in particular, I remember, you know, I really tried to give such great feedback, but I held up the round quite a bit by doing that. And mm. so I have to now find that balance. And that's always the trade-off too, as you know, looking back from at the time, I never even thought about holding up the round, but in subsequent years, you know, just from having run so many tournaments, I can now imagine, yeah, that's great. But from a logistical standpoint, trying to get people out of there and wellness and things like that. But Robert, it was like 930, almost 10 at night. Right. I think the tournament was running late. Yeah. You've got this judge writing these tremendous ballots. There's people in the van waiting to go. Right. And I'm not thinking about that. Right. I'm just thinking, man, this Robert Cannon guy is so talented. I got to tell him everything I know. You know. And that's what I'm saying. Like from from years later, I look back and go. Well, I can understand that perspective of like people, like from a wellness standpoint, like people driving late at night, going yeah. back, you know, driving a few hours that could, that could potentially cause some real problems. But at the time I sure enjoyed it. So <laughs> I, I will say, uh, even if other people don't remember that, I remembered that. And, and you stuck out in my mind as a judge who was willing to really go deep and give really detailed notes and really, and, and I remember thinking, um, that the, the notes that you gave were not, uh, they weren't superficial. They weren't like, um, be better. You know, it was, yeah. here's <clears throat> how you can say something or do something in a stronger way. And like I said, it was something that would apply to all speeches, not just this speech, which I think is also a problem. I see that a lot in debate where people will only talk about the arguments. Oftentimes with public forum, for example, the resolution will change by the time the tournament's over they're not really able to implement the change that the judge is suggesting and so a lot of the argumentation stuff kind of gets lost and you're missing an opportunity to make them better debaters and I, I felt like you definitely did that for me when I was competing on the IE side of things uh, I don't I don't think I ever sat across from you on a on a debate ballot but I, I know I sat across from you on several IE ballots and I always really enjoyed your ballots I appreciate that. I put thought into it, but I'm also thinking about um, who was your duo partner that same year, if you remember. He's uh, an acting partner of yours as David well. David Hale. Okay, yeah. So you and David then, right? Yeah. And then I, I haven't seen David in, since maybe back in that time, yeah. but I've seen you a lot of times since then. I remember you weren't traditional enough to appeal to all the judges yeah. you're going to see at, in my mind, AFA. 
Yeah. I want you to go to the uh, AFA Nationals and perform well because what works here locally is going to be fine, but it's not universal enough yep. to get enough judges to get into the finals at AFA, which is where I would hope you would really want to be. So a lot of those ballots were talking about how even though here they're really strict about certain forms and, and you, David, are violating those forms left and right because you had it and you had the talent to back it up and you were doing your great performance, but it was so close to acting that it was crossing certain traditional lines where back east, I'm going to think in the mid mid east they'll drop you if they if they think you're an actor you're done and i'm thinking and that's what you deserve to be national champions or you deserve to be recognized and it's going to be one judge that's going to decide that they don't like what you're doing yeah and then uh and and that was a battle that we always fought we fought that for years we Mm -hmm. were doing that and and i think that's true but i think also we just needed to learn the system we did come from theater i mean in my high school we didn't even call them speech competitions (laughs) we called them acting competitions and even <laughs> humorous interpretation was acting yeah, you know and that's acting, what, we, sure. what we did so uh, that's the background that we came from but i want to get back to your background so walk us through a little bit more how does your high school career go with speech i mean are you successful do you end up going to nationals what happens oh in high school is not my my story doesn't really do the competitive success that i guess i enjoyed isn't going to come from my high school experience in high school the same maverick attitude about like walking into the round Mm -hmm. or doing the things a little bit too selfish maybe a little too arrogant um i like the people but I stopped going to the contest and I had more emphasis on Model United Nations and mock trial and other. I wanted to have as many experiences as I could. Mm. And so we lost our, our advisor for Model UN because of a serious illness that she had. And wow. we had a contest that we had to go to and we were Israel. So we were going to be uh, huge at the conference, but we had to go to a certain number of events and she couldn't take us. And so I remember walking up and down the halls trying to find a, an advisor. <laughs> and so I did. We got uh, Mr. Suter's his name. Uh, he's the math teacher. I said, hey, how'd you like to have a paid day off? You know, uh, you come up to whatever place, you supervise us. I said, we will have arranged all the transportation. We have a driver. We have everything we need. We even have a sub. How'd you like to have a, a paid day off, but you'd have to kind of go with us and kind of hang out and have a lot of fun. And I, I kind of framed it in that way. And, uh, and he says, are you, are you being serious? And I said, yeah. And he says, when do we leave? And I said, tomorrow morning. And he <laughs> says, okay, sign me up. And so we, so we kept it. And then you see, we did Model United Nations. We did all these different events that I missed a lot of the speech contests. So I didn't get to go to the district tournament because of a conflict. I didn't sure. get to go and I didn't prioritize forensics. And looking back, I wish I had because I'd rather have had the pedigree of the forensics background. I still could have done the other things if I'd just been a little more mature about how I managed my time. Sure. But I wanted to do everything. And so just every weekend, it seemed like I had a different thing I was uh, going to. Uh. And so that's why. So I don't really become what you would necessarily call successful until I got out of high school. And I'm 18, 19 years old, and I've got a talent for impromptu speaking. I just have a lot of knowledge. I have a decent speaking style. So I just kind of go in and, and naturally do well because I'm not afraid of whatever the topic is. I'm going to talk about it. And so I can make it to the finals. We only go to a couple tournaments, but I'm doing pretty well. So I know I'm okay at it. I go to work, and this is not Navy. This is before that, and I'm a young 20s. And my friend is coaching at Beaverton High School up in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. So he's my best friend. So I get to go with him 
and coach the people. We had a national champion uh, that we coached that year. I can't take credit for any of the things because he was just an incredible <laughs> talent. So I was just happy to help in whatever suggestions I gave. But that guy is just phenomenal. His name was Ari. And uh, we had debate uh, students that uh, broke at nationals and, and went deep into the out rounds. And so that's where I found that, you know, they say those who can't do teach. You know, I felt like I was competent enough to be able to have the credibility with the students to say, I, I was successful. I am a successful enough person that can give you the advice. And then I'm just going to help you take whatever your talent is and try to get it to the next level or to get a wider appeal. Because a lot of people have exceptional talent, but they get mad that the judge dropped them or they get right. mad about, and I say, Hey, we have to take responsibility. If that judge doesn't like what we're doing, we need to adapt better to that situation so we can go further in the debate. Let's not let people. Well, so much of back. it too. I mean, people don't talk about this very much. I don't, I don't feel like <laughs> they talk about it, but it, part of it is reading your judge and you have to kind of, they're not, they're not saying anything. It's all body language and being able, having a little psychology background of understanding what are, what are those sun, the kind of signals that they're putting out there that they may not like, what you're saying they may not like you you may remind them of an ex-boyfriend or an ex-girlfriend or something like that and and you're, you're already off on a bad foot and you haven't even said anything yet and sometimes there there are those things that people just don't like you for whatever reason and how do you compensate for that how can you turn people around and get them to like you even though they've got it in their head that they won't like you and there's so much of that those kind of question marks that are outside the control of the competitor sometimes you know i know there's different people i played i play cards like a you know, like the Yu-Gi-Oh game? Mm -hmm. I don't play Yu-Gi-Oh. I play another card game that's very similar okay. to that. And uh, one of the things that uh, we have different styles of play. And there are certain people that are just really get bent out of shape if you have a certain construction of your cards or whatever. Mm -hmm. So usually you just have this casual conversation. We all enjoy playing the game. We have this common enthusiasm. So we have the judge in the back of the round. And I guess the first thing in forensics is I want to get a feel for what this judge's enthusiasm is. Yeah. And you can usually tell when they talk about the things they like, you automatically can start making the anti-pair and say, I'll bet you they dislike this, that, this, the other, yeah. you know, and then I'm able to just in a few friendly questions that are generated to, you know, Hey, let's have commonality with each other. We like forensics. So, so did you compete? Oh yeah. What did you enjoy doing? And I find out this is an IE, an individual events person who's judging debate. They don't really like debate they don't mind yeah you know they just don't like when people talk over their head and get all arrogant yeah. and you know and it and it bothers them on a personal level and i realize they don't like my sub point a is my sub point they yeah. want to hear a nice oratory speech that they can give some meaningful feedback rather than a bunch of jargon once you realize that's your judge it's so easy to adapt to them by just changing a few language choices well, and I, style that's where i'll disagree with you <clears throat> okay. it is easy for someone who makes that that conscious choice but so many students don't make that choice and that's it is easy but it could be easy it could be easy but they don't do it <laughs> and how often i mean some of some students will even ask questions like what do you prefer to see in a round sometimes it's straightforward questions about the debate like what yeah. would you like to see but i think that's too vague i think you have to try to get to what what do you not prefer seeing what are some of the things you've seen in debate that you because if you ask them what they oh, like i think it's too large yeah but if you can be a little more precise interesting without being offensive you know, sure what is your opinion about counter plans and yeah. now this person's like a counter what yeah. You know, and now again, remember when I talked about that certain personality, here's that jargon again. The student's trying to make me feel small. That's why I don't want to be judging a debate. Why right. do they keep putting me in this? Yeah. You know, I'm sorry. To, I didn't mean to cut you no, off, no, no. but you're right. Uh, at some point, if we're coaches, we have to find a way to help our students overcome their own immaturity. Mm -hmm. And in their 
comfort zone. They were taught to debate in a certain way, and they don't like the fact that this particular person, you know, is for preventing them from having the fun or preventing them from having the experience mm -hmm. that they want to have. They don't want to adapt. They want to stay in their own comfort zone and okay, boomer, yeah, <laughs> you exactly. know, because it's usually as someone maybe is a little older in the activity that has more rigid approach where, you know, the high school kid that they love is one that's, oh, you run whatever you want. I, I'm open to everything, mm -hmm. you know, and those are the judges I dislike the most because usually I found that those were the judges, they say they love everything. So when someone says some off topic nonsense with the loosest connection to the topic and the judge is like, brilliant, brilliant, <laughs> you know, yeah. I do like a little more structured critic if I can. But um, anyway, I think that the adaptation comes from a comfort zone and a lack of immature or a lack of maturity where the student, you know, just doesn't have the life experience yet to understand that yeah. they have to overcome certain people in their lives. Otherwise, they're not going to enjoy a, a lot of what they do because there'll be someone who ruins it for them. And if they quit, then that's another life skill lesson that you lost Yeah, because you quit instead of learning how to overcome it. Well, speaking of quitting, what took you out of college speech i mean you said you were doing it in 82 or i'm sorry 86 you said right and then you did it for what a year yeah my um yes i did it for about a year and a half and i would say what happened for me is uh, i grew up in probably lower middle class my mom's single mom she's raising three kids uh, we're children of divorce so we don't have a lot of means you know mm -hmm. and i've got to get to work and i have to pay for these things and so I went to junior college because it was the most affordable path to getting into the university. And then we just had some real, we had some real struggles financially. And it was better for me to go down where my dad owns a business in Southern California. It's better for me to go down to Southern California. And then I'm going to work in the family business on the other family. There's the mom's side and the dad's side. So, so, it, so had your parents divorced? Was that what? Full divorced. Okay. And it had been well established. And she lived up Northern, in Oregon. Oregon okay. Yeah, but we stayed with my mom. So we're raised by the in the single mom home. We don't have a lot of means, so we got to work. Right. And so at that point, I couldn't enjoy the success of forensics. It was more just like an activity mm. that I did that I enjoyed. And also I got a scholarship out of it. So that was nice. And uh, we only went to a couple tournaments uh, per uh, semester or per quarter or whatever. So it was a nice it was a nice fit, you know, for then. Before we get into <clears throat> the Navy, which I want to start asking you about, you said that you had done some impromptu. You said you felt like you were you were pretty skilled at impromptu, just kind of naturally. Yeah, I took to it who, naturally. Who who instructed you how to do impromptu, or was it something you just watched people doing and you kind of picked it apart yourself? How did you how did you figure out impromptu? Well, I know in forensics experience in high school that you have to have a certain structure, and the easiest structure for me was the five paragraph essay. You have mm -hmm. an introduction, three body paragraphs, and a conclusion. Right. So if you can speak with at least that type of structure, then it's going to pass muster. Most people will not fault you because you didn't use an advanced technique. They saw that you were structured. They liked your content. So they're picking you up in the round. They're right. uh, you know putting you in the top three. And so for me, that's where the five paragraph essay teaching comes in. So I know I want to make an assertion. I'm going to support it with some background detail. And I want to make strong conclusions, not just in general, but perhaps to the audience here. So a lot of times I'll speak to the adult in the room and to the young adult in the room. And I actually would prescribe some sort of advice or something. I think that made me unique mm -hmm. because every body paragraph had a life lesson, almost like Aesop fable, but I'm not Aesop. So I don't have this really cool 
philosophy at the end or something, but I would have <laughs> something I could share with you. Sure. And I would do it with authority. And the funny thing is I'm speaking like I'm some old guy, you know, that's been around. Some wizened, you know, ancient yeah. figure. I'm the sage, you know, <laughs> and I'm there and I'm this 18-year-old, you know, <laughs> just telling some you how to live your life. Straight, out of the, uh, straight off the farm in Oregon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so anyway, uh, that's, it was the financial reason is what det- deterred me, distracted me from that. I would like to have pursued it more. And I knew at the time I wanted to pursue it more. Huh. But if you remember, I was doing forensics as just one of many things in right. high school. Uh, they gave me a scholarship at, or like a stipend or whatever it was. I don't know what you really call it, like a tuition waiver and stipend uh-huh. at Mount Hood Community College. And it was such a low ask. Just go to a couple tournaments uh a year even i think we i think i could have gotten my scholarship for one tournament per quarter or one tournament per semester and that was enough to maintain the scholarship so it was nice so i took all these classes or whatever and then when i went down to southern california there was no community college uh, that was my entry to university i'm going to go back to the community college mm-hmm. i'm going to i'm going to get my transfer degree you know and i want to do forensics because i really like for there was no college near where my dad's business was and it's a family business so i'm not getting paid okay i'm being paid but not the way that a regular worker right, would be paid right. you know so family pay yeah. <laughs> and so i don't really have the ability to go to college even at a jc with the number of hours I'm working, I'm working from morning till night. My dad was burning out. Um, that was the big thing too, by the way, is um, I could have stayed with my mom and done some things there to be helpful, but my brothers had it handled. And I went down because my dad was burning out and he just couldn't handle it. So he just needed somebody who was responsible enough to do. We had a liquor store, pizza shop, delicatessen. It was all in one. Mm. And we lived in Lake Elsinore at the time, which is a... Uh, it's a lake, so you have a lot of tourism, so you have seasonal things. My dad just couldn't handle the seasonal thing. I'm just naturally friendly. Well, I run the register right so. around that time is pretty high in America. Oh, it's right? tremendous, yes. So, I mean, it, it, that's got to be a very complicated family situation, you know, with like <clears> trying <throat> to find work and, um, and, you know, for your for your mom, and then you, your dad needs an employee, but, you know, as far as money goes, it's probably much better financially just to have him have a family member that he can trust. Yeah. That he can trust. And also maybe not pay all the overtime, you know, too, that sure. you would with somebody else. We almost lost our business. May I interject? We almost lost our business. A professional eater came into our pizza shop oh, and no. we have this deal that we have this giant pizza. It's a, now it's funny. Cause I know we're being recorded here. My hand gesture is, you know, <laughs> twice my body width. And if anybody knows me, that's a considerable distance. And, and so you've got this pizza and a we're gigantic saying, gigantic pizza. If you can eat this gigantic pizza in one city, you know, we'll give you a thousand dollars cash, you know, and it's a promotion. We had wow. lots of people try. We had a professional eater come in and my dad says, we don't have a thousand dollars, you know, and he doesn't know where he's going to get a thousand dollars because money is that tight at that moment. Our cash flow is so strapped. And he says, it's going to ruin us. And so he made the pizza with morning, morning dough. So the yeast, and then he double, um, he doubled the thickness of the crust with morning eat. So then this person's eating the pea and they were putting away fast. You know, this person's professional. They're just eating and they get almost to the end. And the person's just, you know, they're grabbing their stomach and go, girl, girl. girl. <laughs> and you can hear the person struggling. You can look in their eyes and you see the panic in their eyes. Cause they realize 
it's going to come out one yeah. way or the other. It's either right. going to come out the back or it's going to, they're going to, you know, vomit onto the table. But this person wants to, they just want to get in the local newspaper, you sure. know, professional leader comes sure. to town, ruins small business, you know. <laughs> what, a, uh, what a claim to fame. Yeah. And then, and, um, so that's it. and so, so obviously they didn't ruin. They didn't succeed, but we almost lost, that's how tight things were. Wow. And so when I'm growing up, I just don't have the opportunity to pursue certain things because we were never poor. Never. We always had food on the table, always had, you know, everything is fine. But we were tight. Money was tight. Right. You know? And so <laughs> I did that. So those are some of the scenes. You see, so you remember that more, like the time we almost lost our family business. Yeah. You know? Uh, so anyway. So I, you, I you wind it. up working for your dad and then do you have to, you never go to a, a community college or any university at, right, that point. at that point. And then you decide to join the Navy. Yeah. And so I took the aptitude test and this is a kind of a fun kind of thing. They have this entrance exam. And when you take the entrance exam, it's called the ASVAB. It's something about your aptitude battery, you know. And so AS, something aptitude. And I took the test, and I I maxed out the test. And my brother didn't. And so it was a joke because he had just turned 18. He's leaving, you know, high school. And I've been graduated now for six years. And I'm like, hey, I'm feeling pretty good. I haven't been back to school. I still got it, you know. So then they have the secondary test, the science battery, and it's got like physics and, and some real serious math on it. And I remember I missed at least one or two questions on it. And I was real down on myself because I felt good. Like, oh, I'm kicking I'm butt on this test. Pants, right? yeah. And my brother beats me on the test. He scores <laughs> not perfect, but like one question away from perfect. I'm like two, maybe three questions away from perfect. And he would never let, we were both in the Navy at the same time. He would never let me let it down. Live it down. So I went into nuclear engineering. And so it was nuclear wow. propulsion and, and not weapons, but the yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. you know propulsion side of things. Submarine. So, and, and yeah, and I signed carriers. up for submarines. And so I'm going to do submarines. And I never made it. I got injured. And I couldn't stay. I tried. I rehabbed for years. And I couldn't. I had an accident and blew out my knee. And so anyway, I guess the thing is, is that forensics is still on my mind. So get this for a career boost. I got two flag letters of recommendation from the admiral of the base congratulating oh, wow. me for doing more service than anybody else. You want to take a guess at what my community service was? Speech. It's got to be something. It's speech, speech right? Okay, so it's forensics. Uh, we our Navy base shares a boundary with Winter Park High School in Orlando, Florida, <laughs> and so and there's a break in the gate, which means I can walk right through the break in the gate, and I'm on Winter Park uh, soil. Campus. And I just go to the principal and say, "Hey, you know, when I was 18 years old, I went to this uh, Sandy High School and I ran an after-school class, and I taught people forensics." as an 18 year old, I said, would you let me do that here? Cause I have a lot of free time here in the Navy and I'd, I'd love uh, to do this for you. And the person was like, absolutely. And so I coached. What a windfall for them. <laughs> it, it was nice. It was win-win truly. Cause mm-hmm. I wanted to do that, but it gave me that taste for now coaching. And now I yeah. know you just said that you had taught when you were 18. And I know that you said that you kind of helped out your friend when he was coaching. Yeah. That is, was this really, is this really the first time that you've been let loose with a class of your own where this is your, or had you really started? No, when I was 18, I actually created the program that we did in the high school and the high school was in a very remote part. It's 20 miles solid from where I lived. Oh, wow. And so when I was 18, I don't remember if I had a car yet. I know I got my license when I was 18, but I don't remember if I had a car, but I, I worked out my logistics and I had a plan. Now I created that class when I was 18. I really enjoyed forensics that way. And I really liked the challenge of it. Mm -hmm. I carried myself well. You know, so the principal said, 
all right, well, we're going to supervise you, you know, and then if things seem to be going okay, well, the, the advisors couldn't really follow what was going on easily because it was very precise, competitive forensics. Right. But the one thing they felt comfortable with is I knew what I was doing. And so at that point, I was on my own. I'm writing the curriculum. I've got everybody. We have no real internet use in those days. And right. So we have AOL, maybe, you know, something like that, you know, so dial up or whatever, but we don't really have the same researching we do now. So it would be my responsibility to go to the university or go to the college, do a lot of research. I bring in this raw research and then I get the people helping me. We're cutting cards and we're going to make some arguments. I do the same thing. I do an, another database search and I'm bringing in some scripts and some really interesting uh, theatrical material. And I'm going to say, hey, let's put together a program or something. So I'm running IE's debate and I've got all the limited prep. So the thing is, if you're humorous in Terp, you also do uh, you also do impromptu because that's what your coach said you had to do to be part of the class. So everybody does impromptu. And I loved it because uh, that actress who really knows that she's got it, she's got the presence, she's got the looks, she's she, even her class or her classic uh, appearance, you know. So when she gets up there and starts doing her acting, I'm acting out the role of impromptu. People, she's scoring high. Right. I've got these other guys that are debaters. And they're just logically just laying out, you know, what all the flaws are with the philosopher. And I'm like, stop disagreeing with the quotation. But it doesn't matter, though. People are enjoying what they're doing no matter what they liked. Interpretation they're events or whatever. to the party. But they brought something to the limited prep. Right. And so we were getting a lot of sweepstakes points because we were so diverse. Our interpreters are doing limited prep. Our limited prep are usually doing debate. And we actually had core limited prep people that were like, come on, do it in Terp. (laughs) (laughs) And so we had a pretty successful program. We were winning sweepstakes awards because we were so diverse and we never had the numbers, but we always had the points. And that's where I wanted to, and this is a little bit immature, but I wanted to win, you know, and I can't compete in the high school level. I'm one year out, but I always knew that I I could have. And so I wanted to have some people that would do well. And then the thing is, somewhere my maturity changed because I love the activity, but it stopped becoming more about me and trying to help people find what they're good at. And we'd have a decent enough rapport with one another that when I asked them to do like stamp or impromptu or something like that, they would do it, mm-hmm. you know, because they trusted me like that and they knew I had enough interest in them. And so the honest answer is I really started with I wanted to have my own team and I wanted my team to be successful mm-hmm. and I wanted to do a comparative standard. And eventually that changes to I'm so invested in the success of these students because I genuinely want them to be the best competitor they can be that I stopped thinking about the competition because we were already still getting awards or whatever, but the awards is so behind me. And that's 18. I had this huge shift of maturity in forensics anyway. And that's why my friend, I think, trusted me in impromptu. And he was a debate exclusive, policy debate exclusive. So I would do the LD coaching. I would do the, um, we didn't really have parley in public forum. I would do the the IEs with people mm-hmm. so that he can focus his time. And he wasn't paying me. We're best friends. So he's not paying me for anything, you know? And then I would go with the teams and judge. But uh, that was it. So I have competence I gained a certain type of maturity where I stopped competing through my students. And then my student success went up because it really was all about them and what they can do as opposed to, I need you to do this for me because I have the motive of wanting to enjoy part of your success, almost like a vampire or a leech. I love what you're saying about not competing through your students. And I feel like there are a number of, of, I mean, especially 
in Southern California, we have a lot of grad students who are involved in coaching for the college level. And you see a lot of that where they're still trying to hang on to their glory days. And they're trying to basically write pieces and, and, and write. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're handing over literature that would be good for them, but is not good for the student. And, um, and even, I guess it's, it's not quite the same from middle school because, uh, I, I don't know, we do have some high schoolers who come coach middle school and high school and you have a little bit of that left over. But I feel like with a lot of the middle school uh, level, which you coach middle school mm-hmm. as well, uh, we, I see a lot more of the coaches who've been, I guess, a little more seasoned. You know, they've been out of the game a little longer and they're, they're looking for the success of the individual student. And I think that that... that results in some really incredible stuff for our middle school students you know some incredible foundation that's that's laid and and it's impress it's really impressive to a lot of people who come watch middle school tournaments to see how good a lot of these middle school students are i think people are usually floored that someone in this age bracket can really be that successful mm-hmm. and i think it really comes down to what you're saying which is i don't think most of the coaches are really coaching for themselves they're coaching for the student which is really ideal think of this one of the things i I did a camp with irvine valley college Uh, gary reibold had set up a a thing with sal tenero Mm -hmm. and we're going to come in and we're going to give them some uh, coaching and then on the side i went to talk to the school principal because she was on campus here's her threshold as she communicated to me she says do you believe you're going to be someone who's going to be reading the paper drinking coffee and having the students read from the material, is that the type of sub that you plan to be if mm-hmm. you were to come in? Because we have too much of that already. And she says, I already have a tough enough time with my tenured staff going off book and doing the things that they do, you know, and we just don't need that. And then you go to the middle school, you know what kind of personality you have to have to be able to teach middle schoolers to truly teach to truly teach yeah. and be effective so that same personality that makes them an excellent middle school uh, teacher I think makes them a great coach mm-hmm. and I think they have the relationship with the students they know how to make the the slightly inappropriate joke but just to have that bond you know with this right. they just they know right where the line is and they know the students ultimately respect them and they show it but at the high school they're saying are you a warm body Will you promise to just middle school? Oh, they're so great. So you just watch the quality difference of teaching skill and personality. I think the middle school talent pool is a lot deeper because I think high school is a lot more stressful when people are physically intimidating to you and they, they don't want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I think that can be very, it could really wear someone out. I think the middle schooler teachers find a way to really enjoy the relationships with the students. And I think anybody who can be relational in such a positive way mm-hmm. can lead people through, you know, the, the school play. They can lead people through their model UN conference or, and I want to say, of course, what we do, forensics. And I think they do a great job of it. Well, you, okay, so getting back to high school then, you're coaching in Florida yeah. while you're in the Navy. <clears throat> so how long do you do that for? Two years. Two years. And then... Uh, I actually what? qualified for a third year of, but I didn't get it. So formally two years, two and a half, almost three years, two full school seasons. So what year was this? Roughly. <sighs> Let me think. 90, 1992. 92. So yeah. 92 to 95, something yeah, like 92, that? Yeah, 92, 94, and then uh, halfway through 94. So almost 95, yeah. And then what happens? I got hurt. And oh, then that's when you I'm got out. Hurt. Yeah, I got hurt and I'm out. 
and I can't go to my next school, uh, which is terrible because for me, because that's the submarine. Mm-hmm. So now I get to go from the Did you ever get on a learning. sub? I did, but not in a way that would mm-hmm. be, I was never stationed on a sub. Got it. I, you rode on a sub. Remember kinda. how I got the Admiral letter and stuff? Yeah. So I kind of had a certain notoriety on the campus and I'd been a teaching assistant and I'd been well regarded intellectually and this guy volunteers a lot so I have a good heart for service so they're liking me and what I'm doing and so I have a relationship with admirals and and the captain right they're getting on the submarine and I get to be an assistant uh, nice but that's otherwise how do you get on a submarine they're not going to let the average person you know get onto it unless maybe it's a derelict or or you know a tour of, of a very low yeah so I got into a very prominent uh, vehicle and it was neat because that's what I was trained to do and I would have been able to do it again in Louisiana but I couldn't transfer while I had my knee was blown out Mm. and they were reconstructing it and so eventually I go out on disability and I'm done my Navy career is over and what year was that and that would be 95 no it's the December 94 January 95 I'm no longer connected to the service so where do you go after that I go home and that's where I had to pick Am I going to go to my mom's family up north or am I going to my dad's family? Uh, so, of course, I'm a coward. I go to my mom's family first. And then uh, after about a year of living up north, I go down to Southern California because that's where my best friendships are. So I go back down there. The family business is actually th- flourishing. We're selling it for a profit. Enough time has passed. So what am I going to do? Uh, I went and lived with my friend on the campus at University of Redlands. And I'm coaching people and I'm doing a lot More of coaching. Uh, well, it, exactly. It's just, it's something I enjoy doing. You don't have to pay me for. So they have, they're doing policy debate and I had done CETA, but I have to say, this is value debate CETA. This is before CETA's fast. So it's value. It's, it's Lincoln Douglas in pairs, right. you know? Okay. okay. So I'm coaching the LD team because, uh, oh, I, I got to be real careful because there's names that come out of this. So we just say, at the University of Rillins, there was not a lot of respect for people that would get involved in CETA. Mm. This is NDT. We're, you know, really committed to the policy orientation. And I said, there is no mutual exclusivity here. You can be as policy as you want. Just make sure you impact to the value, you know, and they don't like that limitation. I said, but if you just will accept it, that's what it takes to break at CETA, you have to have a value. You have to have arguments that impact that value, but you can pick whatever value you want as long as you can justify it, you know? And so then at that point, I kind of got a lot of people to buy in. Well, they had a team and they were taking this token CETA team everywhere they go and they're just getting trashed. After I coached them for just a few sessions, they went to their next tournament and broke. Then they went to the next tournament and won the tournament, you know? And it's, like you know, it's because I helped them take the policy debate they already knew and, and adapt yeah. to the judges so that they met those expectations. So they didn't have that judge says this smacks a policy. You're getting a, a low point loss. Mm-hmm. So that way you don't get a speaker point either. They're supposed to drop high and low, but you know, you get a couple of judges like that and you have no chance to advance. Right, it ruins your whole tournament. Yeah. One judge can destroy your tournament if they don't drop high lows. Right. So anyway, I, I guess the finish to that point was is that everywhere I ended up, I'm with a friend of mine that does forensics. And my friend, you know, he's top 10 speaker at NDT, so he's really good. Uh, and then we had uh, the singular uh, top speaker, 
and uh, Rubenstein that was at that school at the time. And so that guy doesn't need coaching. He's just a machine, you know? <laughs> and so the thing is, but he was one that kind of laughed and snickered at LD. And then he listened to me a couple of times and he's like, yeah, okay, that makes sense to me, but he's not going to do it. He's winning NDT, right. you know? But these guys then are serious seated players. And now Redlands is a dual threat where, you know, they're looking at the potential like these For new LD guys. And they might take an LD championship and an NDT championship that year. And uh, so all of a sudden scholarships are changing. And, so, and I realized that, you know, I've got some talent for coaching as long as I have the competence and if I can get the respect of the person to listen, I can give them enough advice so that they don't have that person ruin their tournament. Mm -hmm. And that's all about adaptation, which brings us full circle to the adaptation point. Right. But that's how important it is to adapt. It changes everything. These guys were the perennial losers, and they're even treated like losers. You can't see my air quotes, listener, but that's what I'm making. Mm -hmm. And you can't know how bad that feels unless you've had people that really you know, had talked. You can hear in their voice. They don't respect you. And now these guys are winning tournaments, and then all of a sudden, you know, one of the guy gets a girlfriend or something. Like, it's just, you know, the confidence of the individuals going up. These guys are getting real scholarship money now, and we're thinking about recruiting some LD specialists so we can make them seed innovators. Mm -hmm. It's a real thing, you know? And so it's just neat. And here I am. I'm not an official coach of anything. One of my best friends is on the team, yet the culture of the school changed because someone cared enough about the LD people to make them to effective make in, in, yeah, in CETA and to make a difference or want to make a difference. Sure. And how long are you there at Redlands? Just one year. And then where do you go after that? Well, my friend graduated that year and I went on to manage a little Caesar's pizza. <laughs> <laughs> so I managed little Caesar's for about I'm two or three years. I'm not knocking any little Caesar's managers, but that's yes. gotta be, that's a, that's a step a huge, in a weird direction here. Yeah. I mean, you know, I guess it all adds up to different uh, different experiences that, that you pull from. But, okay, so you manage a Little Caesars. Tell us about... I well, mean just the takeaway from Little Caesars is, is that uh, my family owned a business. Mm -hmm. You know, I have decent sales skills. Sure. So I went in and sold myself to the uh, manager, and I said, hey... I think I could be a real effective assistant manager uh, for you. You know, are you interested? I saw you saw the sign up there. I'm not real interested in making a lot of pizzas, but I will. But, you know, I, I have some skills. Would mm -hmm. you like to take it? And so I'm kind of interviewing her <laughs> to see how interested I am in taking the, the, the job. job. And then she's like, yeah, I could use an assistant manager, whatever. So I go to the owners. I sell myself to them. Come back. I have no management experience at all on my resume. Just the leadership in clubs. And, of course, I'm using that. You know, the Redland story or any of the other stories. So I'm going to use that as part of my, you know, I can be an effective team leader. Uh, she's stealing, you know, she's stealing, she's stealing. And one of our employees are the highest hours. He's stealing. And I think giving her kickbacks. And so I proved that he was stealing and then she covered for him in some manner. And they both get fired in the end of the story. And I'm now the manager of the little Caesars within a month of being there. So now I'm running the show. And uh, so I'm just running this Little Caesars. We're the lowest performer or the second lowest performer of all the Little Caesars owned by this particular group. And it's all throughout the Redlands area. So we're the Redlands Little Caesar. And so Santa Bernardino is kicking our butt in sales uh -huh. and what have you. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. I already know how the story is going to end up. Yeah, go ahead. This is going to be the best Little Caesars, at least in California, definitely in the region and possibly in the country. Go ahead. Okay, go. so it's unfair uh, for the listener. He has my bio in front of him. So when he reads from the I bio, he makes... <laughs> okay, I do not. I, I think I... I just know you. I lie. Yeah. Uh, we're best 
not the best in the company. We're going to be second best in company. Sorry about that. We go. are the best in town. And here's the major changes that I did. My management wants to maximize profits. So they want to buy from Little Caesars proper. There's different levels of quality. Mm-hmm. So I changed all of our orders to the best quality uh bread, the best quality sauce, the best uh, uh, spices. And um, and then I also liberated our portions just a little bit because I thought we were a little too skimpy. And so what happened is we just, within a few months, we had a noticeably better product. And then we marketed just one weekend, come try our pizza, two for one or whatever. Oh, that's actually Little Caesars, you know, uh, pizza, pizza, buy mm-hmm. one, get one free. But we were like, you know, come and try it out, satisfaction guaranteed or just something like that, right? Yeah. And then we've got people lined out out the door, around the corner, and they're not leaving. And this is Little Caesars, you know? And that's because our pizza is that good. It's just noticeably... And anybody who eats Little Caesars, they knew that there's a, there's different places that have better... There was at that time, I don't know about now, a qualitative... So I went for the higher quality, and um, I timed the people just like in speech and debate, right? You have to honor your uh, time commitments. You have four minutes to make a pizza, go. Or you have... So we would do the best practices. I coached the people... I give no free pizzas to anybody. Um, I don't spend uh, any money on satisfaction for people, but right. I try to create the best working environment, the most respect, high fives, how do you, you know, great job, you know, and I'm trying to motivate people so that intrinsically they were enjoying making pizzas, something they told me they, that's the number one thing they hated about their job. And if you remember what I said about when I walked in, as long as I don't have to make pizzas, I'll do whatever you want. Right, right. You know? and so, and of course, I made a lot of pizzas. Sure. But my point is, I try to create an atmosphere where people felt respect for one another. Uh, they were all promised that uh, when they left, I would write them a glowing letter of recommendation because nobody cares that you work for Little Caesars on your resume, but they do care that your manager says you're the most outstanding person I've seen. You're right. the most team player. You're the and I put all the right kinds of things that say you're an outstanding individual and that you're going to do the future great jobs. Want to see. You know, yeah. and I, I think that because they knew I was genuine about that, that they worked hard for me. Mm-hmm. And so our theft is is almost nothing. Our waste is almost nothing. Our quality is high. And so then the owners come in and say, yeah, we need to start cutting back on. And I'm thinking, what? I, I just feel like, what? you're going to cut back on service. So I have to cut one of the employees to try and make a buck. We're going to cut back on the quality of the sauce that people crave when they come in, especially when they buy the, the pizza sticks to dip mm-hmm. it in, right? We're going to, what are we going to cut exactly? Because I had this, such a smooth operation and they just kept thinking they can make more money if they, and so I don't want to be like everybody else. So eventually we had a parting of the ways based on mainly that. And then the worst part was the district manager thought I was just the greatest guy. And then he was shocked and I became shocked. It turns out there's a bonus and I qualify for bonus oh, six wow. months later, and I never got paid my tens of thousands of dollars in no. bonuses. I was paid hourly. And then they came in and tried to, oh, am I too loud for that? No, go ahead. Uh, but, you know, and then I came in and I'm trying to run this quality business or, you know, whatever. And uh, and I told them when they hired me, I said, yeah, my dad, uh, he just ran a really effective business. You know, he's an MBA and he's got, you know, all these skills in business. And so I've learned a lot about the pizza business. And I'm trying to make this someplace that people want to go to. And then they, they just didn't care about it. They just want to maximize the profit. And right. they weren't realize they're going to kill the golden goose if you allow me to go there. You know, mm-hmm. my dad comes in. I said, hey, this is the guy that taught me everything I know about the pizza business or whatever. Turns his back on my dad and my dad offers his hand to shake hands. And I truly do not think the owner saw that my dad extended his hand to shake hands, but turned his back and walked away. 
you know? Wow. Yeah, because he was interested in trying to micromanage my staff, and my staff is on autopilot. They're great. Yeah. You know, they're well-trained. They're enthusiastic or whatever. And that's the kind of situation where <laughs> if you remove the manager, the staff still goes for a little while, right? Yeah. The staff, staff is so well-trained. It's like an army or anything else. You know, they'll go for a little while, but real soon you don't have the right kind of leadership in place and it starts to fall apart and customers i've got customers going out the door so as the manager i want to stand in a nice clean you know uniform whatever right and i'm just thanking people hey thanks for staying in the line i you know there's other places you got oh no we're fine we love your people you know but yeah. i'd have that so they that want me to cut two staff and they want me to go back and make pat pizzas at a one to 1.5 ratio that i'm going to be one and a half times faster than the average employee they want me to cut two employees so i'm just back there sweating making pizzas and so who's going to manage the operation mm -hmm. you know and that's so we we parted ways and then at that point uh that that leads me into uh navy stories and other things that go on so at some point i leave the navy and i have uh left all these different businesses so i go back to school and that's when uh i'm gonna say somewhere after working a few years into around 2000 it's just an opportunity comes up for me. To finish me. your bachelor's, right? Yeah. Okay. Is it, oh, I, I left out something. I'll just, let me just fill it in like this. I'm happy to answer any questions, but I did about 10 years in uh, teaching software applications to business professionals through okay. Executrain and another, oh, I can't believe the Executrain was the second company. But anyway, uh, we, I did that and we were the most successful uh, operation. I was uh, either considered the top or in the top two or three uh, trainers in my first year. And I became training manager later. But the thing is, is that I did a lot of teaching. So I have uh, minor Novell networking certifications. Mm -hmm. I have significant Microsoft certifications for uh, applications and networking. And so I have all this and then the bubble bursts. Mm. So I was the director of a company. The dot-com bubble? And the dot-com bubble burst. And I was running this uh, trade exchange organization as a as the network uh, professional. And it just all fell apart. And then I felt a little bit worthless, mm. you know, because it, I felt like it was on me. I should have seen it coming. I'm Nobody too... saw that coming, though. I mean, I think, I think most people kind of <laughs> thought that was, that was going to keep going. And yeah. I guess it really okay. did. It just... It took a big slump for a while. I mean, that was still... me being arrogant and I could see it coming. We were so busy and yeah. all of a sudden we're just not. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's, that's a good point. No one really sees the, how much. It's only in retrospect that you see that. Yeah. But I blame myself. That's a little arrogant. Okay. No problem. But the thing is though, is that at that point I said, my Microsoft certifications and my teaching uh, experience isn't going to get me the kind of security that I need so I need to get my traditional degree. So where do I go? Where do I always my path to university? I, I still haven't made it yet in the storytelling. Uh, I go to Orange Coast College. <laughs> and uh, I'm a student at Orange Coast College. And I go in and, and I say... And do you mind me asking? Yeah, go ahead. This is kind of a rude question, but okay. how old are you when you go to Orange Coast College? 30. 30, okay. Yeah, around 30. I, I don't know, I'm guessing, but around 30. I don't okay. pay attention to my uh, age. I just had a birthday two days ago. I still have no idea. I had to do the math. Uh, so, and, and it's harder to do the math as you get older. <laughs> I have to carry the one now. Uh, <laughs> so, all right, so here's the idea. I go into Orange Coast College. Now, think of the arrogance. These guys are going to win nationals, and we did. We won nationals that year. I go into the, I, we haven't won nationals yet. I go into the, the national uh, team. I asked them if I can be a coach. 
You know, <laughs> and I said, I have some good skills in coaching. I've coached uh, at least one national champion. I have a lot of people that are, you know, and I'm explaining all these things. And then, so here's a name that people listening might know that Steve Robertson, Dr. Robertson now, but Steve Robertson is going to be my coach. Uh, Felicia Coco is going to be the director of uh, debate at that time. Chris DeSura, uh is running the program. So they go to Chris and they say, we got this guy and we want you to interview him to, you know, for being part of the team. Mm-hmm. They want me to compete. I wanted to coach. I thought I expired. You know, I don't know that I have any eligibility. And so I thought, you know, so we're talking and, and then uh, DeSura looks at me and this is, I'll, I'm real careful how I talk about that. We, we didn't always part on good terms. I think today we're on good terms, but at the time when I competed for him, so I don't want to be speaking ill of someone sure, that okay. I have recently kind of like, things are good between us now and I don't want to make it bad by bringing up. But, you know, he had said kind of like this, let me use different language. How dare you come and, and think you can get on our national league. Do you know how hard we work to, to select the number down to this level? And mm-hmm. you think you can just walk in in the middle of the year? You don't even have a single competition. You think you can join the team? You know? And I'm looking at him going, wow, I'm a jerk. <laughs> you know? What a jerk. But here's the thing. He's talking to me like I'm some competitor that wants to join the team. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I'm sorry, you know, I'll go coach someplace else, uh, you know? And then they say, no, 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 we don't want you to coach. We want you to compete compete because you still have eligibility. You know, you've never been to Faro Pi. You've never competed more than twice in a a semester or even a quarter or a semester. And he said, you're still eligible to compete. And I said, oh, and then here's me. Uh, So is there a scholarship? (laughs) 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 Like, how dare you try to get on the team? So you you do, you compete, right? Yeah. And we win nationals and then, <laughs> you know, and that's where Matt Contreras is my debate partner. And, uh, we moved on to IBC cause, uh, Orange Coast College doesn't want to focus on debate. This is 10, 15 years ago. You know, mm-hmm. they don't want to be known for debate. They've got strong platforms. They've got strong interpretation and they debate as a bonus. It's a cherry on top. Any mm-hmm. debate points they get is just a little more of the margin they already got when they won Matt nationals again, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. So obviously Mount Sack. Is going to be the preeminent, uh, the predominant uh, group, but Orange Coast is right up there with them, you know, yeah. in, co- in competition. So, uh, yeah, so I I didn't coach there. I competed. I took silver in all of my events. I have a little bit of negative stories about that, but I don't have to be negative. Let's just say, <laughs> I believe the time signal should be above the table and not below the table. So, thank you, Florida Region, for having your time signals at. You know, the side and below the table if you're on the West Coast. Shame. <laughs> Sorry, that's a debate thing. Uh, so anyway. So uh, you, you wind up competing for IVC. Yeah. And then how long do you compete there? Oh, just one. Just one I year? did one year at Orange Coast. We won nationals. At IVC, we won nationals for uh, Fire Pi uh, debate gold medal. And then we also won nationals uh, for uh, NPDA. And then um, wow. at... IBC, then I went three gold and then I missed Bavaro because my partner got deathly ill. And I asked them, I said, please let me have a fifth event because I need it just for the cushion. I need to get the Bavaro because Dylan Hendricks and um, Dylan, Dylan Hendricks got it the year before. And I really wanted it, mm-hmm. you know, but I got three silvers and that, that doesn't, you have to get four gold. And he got it with three gold and a silver. I'm like, I need another event. And so I didn't get the other event. So I got my three and then uh, I didn't get Bavaro. And then at league championship, uh, uh, two years later, then I got the, what I was looking for, which is I was the top debate speaker. The, we won the finals. I won first place impromptu, first place extemp, and I won first place in my individual event. So then at that point I felt like, okay, 
you, you know, you I, I did it finally. You know, I told people, I said, I thought I was better than that. But, you know, we had people like Audrey Mink, uh, like I said, Dylan, Dylan Henderson. He's just phenomenal. She's phenomenal. And so, like, she walks into the room. I have to win this round. Uh, like, I have to yeah. beat her here because uh, if she beats me in prelims, I won't make it to finals to have another chance again. She's just too good. So I walk in with my best stuff. And what do you think? How, this is a point Loma or no, it's Loma. We're at the Point Loma tournament. She goes in, gives a speech. I'm listening out. I'm the next speaker. I'm listening in. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like finals. I mean, she's just so amazing. And so she leaves the room. She smiles. And it's not like the, I got you smile. It's the, I'm a total professional smile. Yeah, and hi, genuinely nice Genuine person, person yeah. nice person, you know, that I've offended numerous times because I couldn't <laughs> speak to women without like, no, hey, how are you? <laughs> it's a, I'm Bill A, you remember me? And yeah. she's like, I'm sorry, who are you again? So anyway, so I walk in and I'm giving my performance and I'm bringing the A game, Robert. I'm bringing it. And I'm thinking this speech because of my subject matter is so strong. I said, I think, and the judge is really with me. And someone woman walks in and she goes, excuse me, uh, do you know where the parking lot, is? you know, whatever, right? And I'm up on the stage and this guy's in the audience. And, and so she walks in, she goes, excuse me. And then now she's got an attitude, you know, excuse me. Could you please now what I don't know. Do you teach your students this? Did you get taught by your coaches? What do you do with the Fire Pie Hotel when housekeeping walks in and wants to change the sheets or whatever? What do you do if you're you just speaking? You keep going. You keep going. So I kept going. This woman comes up the steps, halfway up. Now she's up. She's using a high voice. She's shrill. She's like, will you please at least respect me enough to look at me when I'm talking to you? And so she stands in my face between me. So I just move my head. And I'm still talking to the judge and I'm giving my speech, you know, and then she goes, oh, my, you are the rudest person I've ever seen. And then she just stomps out, slams the door or whatever and keeps going. And I just keep giving my speech you know, to the person because I want to win that's this crazy. round. Crazy, Yeah. So that's pretty interesting, is it? You were the rudest person I've ever met in my life. Did you track her down and, and tell her what was going on and you just never saw her again? Or no, what? I did what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I, gave, I just finished my speech. But the thing is, I thought I was going to win. I thought, this guy's going to be so impressed. It was a good speech. And then this massive thing, I was afraid he would think I paid her to do it. <laughs> Did you win? <laughs> no, she beat me. She's the <laughs> national champ. She's a reigning national yeah. champion. What am I going to do? Uh, but anyway, the thing is, though, um, I really enjoyed that part. And I don't remember why that particular story comes up, but I did. Those I are great stories, got, man. Those are awesome. That's what it's Thanks. I finally got some some achievement. And then at that point, if you're like I was the top speaker at Fire Pie, I've got like little things as a competitor. And then as a coach, we won national. So I, it's just enough so that when – Magnet Academy, which is where I'm at now, 12 years ago, looked at my resume. They said, oh, this guy's competent, right. you know, and everywhere I go as a coach, I've been successful. And so it was just, will the students listen? Yes. These are young Korean, Chinese students, a lot of Indians, and they're raised to just really respect whoever the coach or the teacher is. Yeah. So when you ask them, I'd like you to do this, they, t- they take the notes and they're like, yes, sir, we will, we will do that. You know, now it's not like that really. But it's a lot like that, especially sure. when I taught in Korea, it was like that. And uh, so now the thing is, do I have a genuine concern for the needs of the students? Do I have competence to be able to bring that? And can I stop trying to compete through students? And I think I had given it up years before. So then at this point, what can I do to help you to be the best? And so then I just, I'm not a competitor anymore. I'm a, I'm a coach and I've been coaching for a long time, decades. Mm-hmm of doing this and I've had success at it because somewhere along the line, I learned that if you try to compete through the, the success and the talent of your students, it's 
it there's, doesn't help you, either one you of are you. lacking a maturity though yeah. that's going to hold you back from being the best coach you can be but it, it really doesn't help either one of you it doesn't help you and it doesn't help them yeah it really does not genuinely no, no it doesn't and the thing is you might win a few awards here and there right but it's not going to consistently. But it's not going to satisfy you, and the student <clears throat> is going to walk away with any better education because of it. Yeah, it's just it, you're like programming a robot. Well, here's, at an, best. here's another thing too, because I, I think about the criticisms I have in forensics about uh, people who don't think about the long term. So they're going to teach people how to manipulate definition. They're going to teach people how to uh, take a unique perspective on a piece of evidence. So you've distorted the author's meaning. But the words that you underlined in the card look like they're supporting this idea. Mm -hmm. But if you've read the article, you know you've taken the author out of context. I get students that I've taught that says, well, who actually reads the article? Like, who's going who's gonna to know? Uh, but you know. You know. Yeah. And so I'm thinking this. Um, how would you be rewarded in an academic setting? So the professor. So I'm hoping, that's my goal for my students. I'm hoping to give them skills now in the 6th, 8th, 10th, and then I don't see them as 12th graders usually. Mm -hmm. By 11th and 12th, they're definitely looking at going to college. So I've got 6th, 8th, and 10th grade. Those are my, my transition years where people are going to make a real shift. I want my 6th, 8th, and 10th graders to succeed in college. So I want to teach them debate and how to make strong arguments so that they make strong position papers. What professor do you know that will reward someone who said, well, if you look at the word this way, it actually means this completely different thing that's inconsistent with any of the literature you've read. So now I don't have to read the body of literature that my professor has assigned. I can simply read a couple of articles and I can put together a couple of arguments. I'm trying to win on a technicality. But here's the thing. Is, is, does any tenure professor even hesitate to put an F on a paper when no. someone is, no. And so I don't want to teach students to. Well, you, you hear stories about professors who will throw a paper in the trash if it's written in comic sans. You think they're not gonna. <laughs> okay, fine. You're right about that. You know it's what I mean? Like story, they're, yeah. they're not gonna. Well, I'm, I'm serious. You see, you hear stories about that. Someone who fabricates evidence, or at least in the perspective of the mind perspective of the professor, there's no way they're going to reward that. They're totally going to trash that and give it an F. Yeah, yeah, I would. And that's the thing is that what I'm teaching right now is I'm trying to teach my young people a little bit of edutainment. I want to be educational, and I also want to be entertaining, but I want them to know that there's real learning. Now, the question is, can I get them to do the learning and still feel like they're having fun. Mm -hmm. And if they, and if I'm successful, they'll stick with it. And this is why I tell the director of our academy, I said, we should be doing the highest quality, the best practices possible. Because if we commit to best practices and a genuine concern for students, the business will be there because there will be a noticeable qualitative difference in terms of what goes on in your academy and what goes on in others. And if people are there to simply get certificates and trophies or whatever, then it, this might not be the right fit. I still think teaching these best principles does lead to a lot of trophies and success and some mm -hmm. top prizes. But the thing is, I want to build a foundation so that when they go to college, and there's no doubt the students I teach, their parents have a college plan. You know, These kids will graduate from college, and they don't want to just go to a college. They want to go to a top college. Right. If you want to write the right uh, admissions letter that gets you into college and you want to talk about debate and adversity or whatever, uh, talk about what it was like to be and then you know, fill in some cultural, ethnical difference or talk about being female in debate and, and talk about how there's a lot of patriarchy in debate that you had to overcome. And then you talk about how on top of whatever built-in biases our society had— you had really smart people manipulating 
evidence, manipulating uh, the, the language of the topic so that all of the research you did is no longer relevant in the debate, <laughs> you know, and yet you still managed to have a decent career. You didn't quit. And that's the key. I, I have students this year. I've already had three or four students quit because they don't like uh, the games that other students are playing because they're counter-educational. Right. And it's just not healthy. And I'm not being specific right now on purpose because I don't want to pick a fight, you know, for any potential listener. I'm just commenting on if we teach people how to do the core principles of researching the core principles of argument construction, stop teaching fallacies as an advanced course. I'm not kidding. I'm teaching in Korea. I'm having lunch with what is regarded the number one coach in all of Korea. And uh, he's got the winningest uh, academy and he is the number one. And we're having lunch and he tells me something about how, have you seen a presidential debate lately? You know, or something like that. And I thought it interesting. Mm -hmm. I said, well, uh, sure. You know, he says, when I teach my students, he says, that's what I teach them. I teach them how to stay on the bullet points and how to, and I'm like, laughing because I <laughs> thought he was making a joke and then I stopped laughing because I realized he was being serious very serious and was actually sharing one of his like secrets of success with me and I laughed in his face but really I thought I was laughing with him until I realized he, he just wasn't laughing and I thought oh you know and uh, they teach literally they have an advanced course and they teach fallacies as winning strategies in debate you know, so they're saying, how can you take uh, something that's out of context, like statistics out of context or oh, and wow. how powerful or they would teach them, you know, how that's to awful. No, I'm, I'm serious. It was like an advanced course. So they would actually have here's what the fallacy is. Here's how you can win debates by doing this, you know, and I thought you well, guys are the how, number what does that one? do to a child or hmm. any, not even a child, just a student in general. It doesn't have to be a child, anybody. When you say that that's the right behavior and that's the right mindset, because post Post experience, you know, after they're done with debate, after they're done with um, either yeah. middle school or high school or college, whatever, they feel like that's okay to do to just walk around in life. And now you have people who are professionals who feel that that's ethical to do. And you have. But I want to interject on that. I don't think they leave the activity thinking that that's what you do. I think that they leave the activity thinking that's what debate is. I hope so. I hope, if, if, I hope if that's, that's it. the bottom. Right. I hope that's all that. I mean, that, that's destructive enough. But think yeah. about what what that could lead to. Mm -hmm. I mean, I hope I hope your scenario is better because it just ruins the reputation of debate. But if you're educating people to think that's how you should behave in other aspects of life, which I'm not convinced that people don't. You're saying they don't. I don't know, man. If you're saying that they they're doing this in debate, I think it's not too hard of a, a reach to start applying it to other fields too. I found that when I was teaching in China and people would do a couple years, this is what Dr. Reibold says. It's in his book, I think, or at least it's uh, in things that he's trained me in the past, uh, which is you get your debate student for about two years. Mm -hmm. He says, after two years of doing the debate, debate will have a, a tremendous diminishing return in terms of the time that you spent doing it and the things that you're learning to be successful in what debate has become. So if you want to be able to have like a teaching moment, mm -hmm. you have about two years with your student in those foundational first couple of years. You'll have the year that they were figuring it out and they're kind of enjoying it. And you'll have the year where they start to excel because they, they understand the activity and they're making rational argument based in evidence and they're, and they're doing it well and they're being well rewarded. But then when they went into open, you know, in their third and fourth year, whether it be at the junior college or even high school, when they go into more of an open debate, the skills you need to win are counter 
to what you would do in an educational mm. academic environment. And so to be successful, and so that's why I say when people see the transition from year two to year three and what they're doing now compared to what they were doing then, it's a tremendous qualitative difference. And I think they know that what they're doing is not right. And that's why I believe that a smart person will not leave the activity thinking that that's how you're successful in life. That's what they need to do to win debate rounds. Even that's bad though. I'm I agree. Not, I'm, I'm that's not why I don't want it. to teach it. I want to do four years of the same. Yeah. I can't retain them. I can get students for about one to two years to stick with me. And then as soon as we get another dynamic coach, a young person like uh, my partner, Matt, uh, you know, he's my debate partner and he's also my uh, coaching partner at mm -hmm. Magnet, you know, and he's very dynamic, but he wants to, he wants to play the game and he wants to play at the highest level. And again, at the beginning of our conversation, when we caught into the coaching element, adaptation, right? So now we've gone figure eight. We did full circle and now we did a different circle, <laughs> right? So now we have, or is it infinity? <laughs> I don't know. We're, in, <laughs> you know, we're, we're infinite. In, are we in infinite now, right? And so, but the idea is that he wants to win at the highest level and he knows what that is. And see, and that's the thing. My students can tell, I don't want to take them down there, yeah. you know? And he's like, I know the way. He's got a flat mag light or whatever. And he's like, yeah, we're going to be fine. Trust me. You know, I've been here before. I know where I'm going. I will lead you to the other side. You will be successful. And they will be successful. Yeah, they'll, they'll but get trophies. Will they, yeah, but will but they, are they have... truly successful? Long-term life successful? And that's what he's saying. He's like, well, what are you paying me for? He says, I'm supposed to be, uh, you know, an advanced uh, coach and I'm teaching them advanced things. And so how am I supposed to do my job well, if I'm not teaching them to I mean, it's the, the difference the between climbing Mount Everest mm -hmm. or learning to climb, yeah, right? Sure, sure. I mean, you, you, if you can want to learn to climb, climb you can take Coach Bill's class. Right. If you want to conquer Everest, you'd go in math. I'm like, no. I have, I have national champions I've coached. Trust me. I know. And the thing is, sure, they believe you know. But the thing is, I'm going to hold them back. I'm going to ask them to do ethical things that they know there's no chance they'll get caught on an, F, uh, let's say, evidence sideways where mm -hmm. they didn't manipulate it to where they took the opposite of the author's intent, but they kind of skewed the author's intent. A little. No one's going to catch them. They know they're not going to get caught, you know, and they needed the evidence. I have to do an aside. This is in support of what I just said, but just listen, hear me out on this. I'm talking to a debate champion from the United Kingdom. I don't know where specifically, so I just want to say in the United Kingdom, there was a national champion, and this guy is a winner in, I believe, British parliamentary style mm -hmm. of debate. And he is the uh, like a grand champion, right? We have this conversation one-on-one. -on -one. And I had said, uh, you know, I'm concerned about the concept of bluffing where you have evidence and you're going to present the evidence, but the truth value of the evidence is in serious question, you know? And so I've heard people say it's only bluffing if you get caught, you know, hmm. right? And it's kind of a fun chuckle. And he says, well, there are times in debate when you're going to present an argument where the supporting arguments are necessarily true regardless. And I just tune him out at that point. I'm like, I can't, yeah. I can't work at a place like that. I can't, uh, I can't endorse that, yeah. but that's what it takes to win at the highest level. And if you asked him, which I did, you know, he's talking about sometimes that's a necessary evil of the game is that there are times when you're forced to make an argument where the underlying or the underlying assumptions need to be true. And so therefore you present something that you know, you know is false. I disagree with that because I think <laughs> if you're really clever, there's never a time that you need to be unethical. I mean, there's, if if you're trying to play the game and you feel like the only choice left for me is to make unethical choices, then admit defeat or, or argue, hey, all of my ground has been taken away and this is no longer, a, a, I'm no longer able to make any argument here 
And that's a reason why I should win is that they've painted me in a, such a difficult position that this is no longer a fair debate. Something yeah, along not those to lines. their credit, you know, because they did something that we're we you and I are saying is unethical, right. And put me in that position. But here's the thing: when something becomes normative, right, then at that point it's uh, cultural relativism. You and I then are guilty if you'll allow me to invite you into my assertion that uh, we are telling people that we believe, speaking for you, that. What you're doing is not ethical here. Mm -hmm. This is this is you have crossed a line where the other person says in the activity it's considered an accepted practice. So cultural relativism relativism teaches us that we shouldn't be judgmental of other cultural uh, uh, decisions that are being made, and that if you're part of the culture, then you have a voice in that culture. But for you to judge that culture and say that behavior within your culture is really unethical because of my outsider cultural mm -hmm. point of view, well, then you have been culturally inappropriate in the way that you judge them. And so then we're guilty of something far deeper than debate when all we're, okay, I'll stop saying we, but all that's being done is we're saying, could you please interpret, interpret, would you please interpret the material in a way that's reasonable and consistent with the literature? And they're saying, I have the right to my voice. This is what we do in debate. Mm -hmm. this, and then the judges are on board. They're part of that. And so uh, this is, uh, was it fantasy theme analysis is the culture, or excuse me, the communication theory. And uh, Borman is the author. And then he talks about these fantasy chains. And he says that they do things that reinforce that community. And so in debate, it's normative. And if you aren't participating in that, you're naturally an outsider and you're far less effective in reaching your audience and you have failed to adapt. I guess I philosophically mm -hmm. disagree with that. You disagree with my analysis of no, it? No, your without... analysis. Okay. I mean, your analysis is fine. I just feel, I philosophically disagree that that, I don't know that that necessarily has to be the way things are. I think you can be part of, okay, so case in point, uh, when I was competing, I did a national survey of plagiarism. I had worked with somebody else and we did a plagiarism study and we were trying to find out, uh, especially on the IE platform side, how mm -hmm. many uh, college speeches are being plagiarized. May I ask, did you investigate the, uh, the un was it the the contribution of coaches so like the unattributed yes. uh, collaboration or yes that's okay, basically what we're trying to get at is the the end goal if if we could make, wave a magic wand was to find <clears throat> out and reveal how many of these speeches how many informative speeches or <laughs> speeches to entertain persuasive uh, cultural artifact or critical analysis whatever that is whatever the the event is how many of them are written by PhD level professors and performed by students who are still attempting to get their bachelor's degree. So <clears throat> we did this survey and we got back, it was an anonymous survey and we got back these answers that were quite telling. And some of them, uh, to the community's credit, they were honest about it. And they said, oh yeah, a lot of the coaches were like, I write all my speeches, all my student speeches. One of them said, uh, you know, just because that's the way that everybody else is. And <clears throat> I, ha I write all of my students' speeches, they were adamant and 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 open about it, and I was I was floored. I couldn't believe that. I guess I I, I thought that they would know that that's somehow ethically wrong, and I find that ethically wrong, although not against the rules. But well, isn't that what we're what we're trying to 
teach students to do? I mean, I, I think if we're an academic, if we're an academic event, you know, we are so affiliated with the university, then we're covered by the university code of conduct. And I think that regardless of what the rules are for high school NSDA or in college, let's say I'm going to use debate NPDA or AFA. We, as competitors, have two masters. We have the rules of AFA that we have to follow, right. but we also have the code of conduct of our university. And within the university, unattributed collaboration uh, is uh, something that can get you at least kicked out of a class, could put you on some sort of academic uh, probation or warning if the college were to enforce it, but the college isn't finding out about it, but they are. And principals are going, now this data that I'm sharing is maybe seven years old. Uh, this goes back to the time when there was a coach, I don't want to say his name, partly because I forgot it. He was in a round and he got really upset with his uh, peer and he turned around to her and he dropped his pants I and showed his... That was national news. I remember this. I know that. Yep. I just want to say the person's name in case sure. they're still in the activity. But I just want to say, but when that was happening, right around that time, there were these uh, articles that were being written. Now, Dr. Reibel sharing this with me. He reads the Wall Street Journal religiously. He reads... The, so it's either Los Angeles Times or, or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. One of these, there's an op-ed written by a professor or no, a, print, a president. And uh, also, Dr. Reibold is a friends, university president. A university president. Uh, sorry, yeah, not the president. Uh, so anyway, the um, and then he's friends with uh, Skip Rutledge down mm -hmm. in Point Loma. And so I think this is fair. This is not said in private between them. I think sharing it with me is because it's. But the president of the University of Point Loma was not pleased with the idea that there were some very questionable uh, issues about plagiarism and about. Uh, some of the language that's used or things that went against the university's uh, principles or code and that forensics needs to be consistent within the code. The way Dr. Reibold shared with me about the um, what was written maybe by the Wall Street Journal or one of the uh, newspapers, the president, uh, the university president or survey of presidents is saying, we don't like the fact that there's not a strict observance to academic principles in debate of all things mm -hmm. because we so the respect for debates going down funding for debate is going down and that was like i said years ago and i'm doing this from memory so i apologize sure. to skip or to gary if i've said something that was not a hundred percent consistent with what i'm sharing now but the principle i think of what i'm saying both of them and the principles would agree or the presidents would agree there's something about debate and forensics now that would not be tolerable in the classroom or in an academic environment. And I'm wondering why did forensics, a school activity for most, how did we veer so far away you know, from university principles? Is it our rebellious nature? Is it the fact that we feel oppressed and we, we have a voice and we need to have the freedom to, to, to you know? Yes and yes. <laughs> right? And I think it's also competitive nature. I think and competitive, it, yep. you, you add competition and people are always gonna look for ways to either cheat the system or shave the system, you know, mm -hmm. so that they can get an advantage. And this is definitely a way to get an advantage. But that, going back to what you were talking about earlier, that doesn't make it okay. And I, I mean, I've, I struggle with my students sometimes where we're having conversations about whether it, it be speeches or debate of what is the right thing to do. And I've said it many times, I would rather you lose rounds honorably than win rounds dishonorably. Like I, I can't handle that. I can't handle that. Yeah. And it's not just you, it's not just your reputation, it's my reputation, it's the, it's the, uh, the academy's reputation, it's, it's, it's the event, it's the activity's reputation that you're playing with. It's not just you. Mm -hmm. It's selfish to think that you can get ahead by some of those 
those actions. And I'm not calling anybody out. I get it. I understand why people would. Um, and I'm not attacking, you know, your coworkers who might want to go to Mount Everest and that's what they want to get out of the activity. There's a means to an end out of that. Like if you, if you scale Mount Everest, that might help you get into Harvard university because you have that on your transcript and maybe you don't really care about the activity. You just want to get into Harvard so you can go make a bunch of money or do whatever it is that you want to do in your life. All of that is noble. All of that is good, but that doesn't mean you have to be unethical about it. And while there might be some some pedagogical differences between like what we share versus other people saying, well, we're not really teaching people. Okay. But we have to teach them ethics. And I think that that is more important than any sort of educational, um, uh, any other educational value that we're going to teach them even more than doing geometry. If you teach them the ethics behind, why should you do this the right way versus just cheating? Then, that's more important than even the the lesson that you're trying to show them. You know what I mean? I completely agree. And the other thing I wanted to bring up on that is about this concept of ethics. But before that, just a little context. I tell my students, and this is going to be anecdotal because I don't have any data to Mm -hmm. back this up. And I say that the debate tradition is going to borrow from the legal tradition. That's where we get a lot of our terminology, the Latin uh, root words and and concepts, a lot of that. But we also use a lot of math because we're doing a lot of impact calculus about how impacts happen and when impacts happen and how to compare them and how to weigh them. So there's gonna be principles of math. There's also principles of math in case debate where if you have a plan, do you assign, and and I don't know, maybe I should open this as a question to you, but let me get a little further in the context and and I'll open it back to you in that way. Do you find that your case area, does it need to be representative of the whole or does it just need to exist under the umbrella of the topic? So Dr. Robinson taught us, they said, hey, look, this is a concept of parametrics. It's real simple. He says, just because it falls under the topic umbrella doesn't make it fair game. It has to be representative of the whole. And so, yes, you can defend this one narrow case as long as it's representative of all the other cases. And in some cases, you'll find people that will find one particular case, but it goes against the grain. It goes the other way. It mm-hmm. would be an outlier mm-hmm. in research, but they took the outlier and they made it their case. The because it fell. evidence. Yeah. yeah. And so we would argue then typicality instead of topicality. We would say that though you're under the topical umbrella, this is not a typical representation of the cases. So then you have picked an outlier and it should be rejected. Uh, you know, in simple logic, it's a hasty generalization. You took this one example that goes against the grain and try to make it sound like all the cases are like that. So I come back to you with this context and say, would you find that mostly true that if you did narrow the topic down to a particular case area, would you find it necessary that it be representative of the whole? I think that really, de- it, it's quite, it's not easy to just directly answer. No, it's not. Right? And I think it, it also, because we're talking in abstract, there's not a specific resolution or topic area that we're discussing we're talking about abstract ideas and we're, we're speaking abstract about abstract. So yeah. that starts to get really esoteric and people get lost in the weeds because of it. I also think whenever you drill down, you know, you can start looking really, really closely at things and stuff gets really, really weird. You know, whenever you start micro examining things, I think there has to be a cultural understanding of what is too micro to go you know like mm-hmm. if, if we say 
you know, if there's some sort of resolution that talks about citizens in America and you're talking about your pet dog and you're going to make this argument that your dog is a citizen of America in some very specific way and we're using this specific instance of you know something that your dog does to apply to all of of America, well, that just that's micro topicality, right? I mean, you're 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 so specific, you're too specific, that you, you found evidence to prove the contrary of the whole general idea of of America, like you're disproving that that overall concept. But it, it's it's not what what was intended, right? Framers' yeah. intent of what what did they want us to discuss? But also the educational burden. Do we have? And I would say a lot of coaches that are my peers don't feel that there's an educational burden. But what's the educational value? And you can use that as a synonym, a functional synonym for uh, what is the significance of your argument? You mm -hmm. know, how significant is this? Because a lot of the authors are writing about the major issues, but you picked a real minor issue that's not being written about. Mm -hmm. And then you're trying to make it sound like it's more significant than it is. And you can go micro, micro, micro. And there's a lot of professors out there. They have to publish or perish. Right. You know, you've heard that expression. Yeah, yeah. And so the for the listener, the idea that if they don't publish, then the university, uh, you know, they might not get tenure. And yeah. if they do have tenure, they still have to publish to honor their contract. So they have to publish. So I look at an area. And there's just so many people that have written on it. I have to find some area that's unique sure. so that I have an opportunity to do a little bit of research. I get some grant money. I'm not doing it for the money. I'm doing it to honor my obligation to the university. And I'm going to publish. And I'm going to do some research. I'm going to publish on this micro unit. And the debate researcher on LexisNexis or ProQuest, they find the research from Dr. So-and-so. And they said, hey, look, Dr. So-and-so claims that this is an area that's currently being ignored. Uh, he provides or she provides all this justification for why this is so significant, which they have to do for the grant. <laughs> you know, and then the person argues that this is my first argument. Well, I think my second argument is the other outlier I researched. Right. And I think part of the solution to that would be that we are not valuing confirming pre-existing research all the value is placed on <laughs> on original research and not confirming data through right. other, through additional research and there's so much value in that you know the repeatability of experiments and and you do a, a, a research experiment and everybody just goes okay well this must be fact now well if i can't reproduce your results then it's not that's right it's not fact right or we shouldn't accept it as fact anyway. but remember it was peer-reviewed though sure so that means that there was some analysis that was done prior to publication that's the norm for journals. We just, so if this person wrote it on yeah. Google or on their Facebook or their you know Instagram or Tumblr, but no one is in the peer reviewed. You know, you do a blind peer review, uh, and, and that doesn't mean that they're doing the same experiment. They're just kind of validifying. Yeah, this sounds like it would no, work. No, they, they look at your uh, methodology, right? And they just look at the methodology to see if it seems consistent with right. academic practices, and then they just give you the the, the thumbs, thumbs up. up. But yeah. are you saying, are you suggesting though in your discussion that this is kind of a rubber stamp process? That no, I'm saying in order to encourage professors to not have to focus on such micro research in the mm, first okay. place, <clears throat> we should be valuing our, our academic institution should be valuing the process of verifying pre-existing research, you know, and saying, hey, here's a study that was done in the 1960s, and a lot of stuff has been based on that. I would like to reproduce this and see if I'm getting the same results or do a new spin on it. And <clears throat> and I think there's so much of an academic push in this publisher parish world 
to come up with new innovative ideas as you were talking about like hey let me find this micro area that needs to be analyzed and but that actually i would say didn't need necessarily it was been ignored by other sure, researchers right but i'm so desperate to find something find something so i say hey you've ignored this really important right. area and, and that's I'm where just... debaters are pulling a lot of that that information out, you mm -hmm. know, and, and they're focusing on the minutia or the, the weird inconsistency the, against the grain example or something like that. And there, there's so many uh, incredible questions of research that need to be answered or at least verified, you know, and, and I think there's still so much of that. There's so much work and everyone's trying to make their own new claim. And I think that that's a problem with academia in general. Somebody found research on the Electoral College, and we debated this a few years ago. And uh, we had uh, an institution, it's there in our league or in our region, and this institution found this uh, article, and the article said some really strong things, and it had a, I'm gonna modernize and say it had a 2020 date, mm -hmm. you know? So they're saying, look, 2020, we have this research on this website, and here's what it's saying. And so my students uh, would ask, can we see the original, and uh, or whatever and, and so we got the data but we didn't have a chance to look at it until we went home mm -hmm. so i go home and i type in the material and um it's clickbait <laughs> it's a clickbait it yeah. has this electoral college should it exist and then it had two or three paragraphs that were straight uh plagiarized in the sense that they just lifted it right off of another document that we already had from years past but it had the most current date on it right. because it was clickbait. Every time you went there, it either had a new date on it or it had. And so it says, what do you think? Yes or no. Mm -hmm. And then when you click yes or no, you know, they get paid right. for the advertising. Clicks. Uh, this was the, the main evidence that the institution was using to prove their point. And they were beating us on uh, the relevance. And there's three questions. There's a, the relevance of your author. There's the recency of your publication. And there's the reliability of the publication. You know, even if Dr. So-and-so from Harvard wrote it, if it was published on Wikipedia, that person might have embellished and said it was from Dr. So-and-so from Harvard. So the reliability factor, right? right? So what we had here is we had clickbait that sounded super relevant. It was completely on point on the Electoral College. It had pros and cons side by side, because I think it was from ProCon.org mm -hmm. that they copy-pasted. <laughs> so they had the pros and cons, and then the date. And so they were saying that our ideas, which were in the second paragraph, you know, mm -hmm. they were using it on both sides. And so they would take the pro side and they would say, your ideas are completely out of date. Things have changed. And here's what the reality is. And then we as were- As of 2020. As of 2020. Or, yeah. Now, remember, this is not- Seven years this is like, ago. Yeah. This is like, was it seven years ago? Has no, no, no. That long? I think it's but, what you said. Yeah. 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 So it was just several years ago that we had the Electoral College. And I thought- this is research that someone found by doing Google, but there's an ethics also in terms of when you're looking at the research, you found it online. And so what's the difference between- Doing your due diligence, finding out where it came from and not just- But you decided to use it in the debate. Yeah. You know, and it could have been challenged. Like, you know, I, I'm really negative about the, the constant evidence challenge to stall out crossfires. That's an accusation by me. I think debaters are stalling out the crossfire because they don't want to go too deep beyond their comfort zone so they'd rather challenge for evidence to give themselves time to think so that's my assertion i'm saying that i believe that's what's happening i can't know for certain but in the due diligence uh process this person found uh this information but they're not sure what's why not just have a coach publish the blog mm. you know and just have the coach write paragraphs exactly the way <laughs> you would like it you know, and as soon as I said it, my students were like, that's great. You no, know, is no, Megan Academy? No. And I'm like, what are you 
talking about? I was giving you a negative example. It's great. Can you do it? Can you, you know, and because uh, we had journalism. Well, at that point, why not just say by George Washington? I mean, for fabricating evidence, if we're going that oh, no, far. No. At this point, I wouldn't be fabricating a manufacturing, a little bit different. Yeah, I'm saying things I, mean. I believe are true. Right. Right. So I put my name on it, but nobody really knows who I am. I'm yeah. Coach Bill, but they wouldn't yeah. know Bill Eddie yeah, if they yeah, saw yeah. it. You know, and, you know, and it has a recent date and it just has this, I hope, kind of an intelligent narrative behind it. And then I'd rebuttal myself in the next week's article. And then I, you know, do rebuttals again, you know, and I have this fight, this internal fight against myself. And then the students can quote that because it's fair game. It's out there, yeah. you know, and I would say that uh, the relevance, I think the author is, uh, you know, I don't think I have the expertise on the subject beyond maybe what a basic journalist might have. I did some research and here's some conclusions I found, but nobody did the uh, fact checking for my department. I don't have editorial review, you know, so I just get to post whatever I want with single source, you know, um, and no verification and I can publish, you know, so I'm self-published that way. Maybe the date definitely, because we'll definitely post it recent, but is that reliable? And I think that people don't want to concern themselves with reliability. It's online. Anybody can find this. It's fair game. And if they don't like it, the burden's on you to challenge the reliability of my evidence. You know, and that's where I'm saying, and I hope that I'm joining with you in saying that I don't think we do the due diligence or I don't think we look at the reliability factor of the evidence we're sharing. You know, we found evidence, we want to use it, and we're not going to become overly concerned with who wrote this blog. You know, we just found somebody who claims that they're an expert. They've said some things that we really like and they seem really passionate about it. Well, so I'm going to use it. I want to ask you, because it kind of dovetails into one last area I want to get into, because you went to China, you went to Korea. Did you find that those kind of ethical things were happening in China and Korea when you were there? And also tell us quickly about your experiences in China and and Korea and setting up debate there. Did you find that these things were happening (laughs) Yes and the no. same kind of I just, Yes, I'll tell you how it happened. It was in the international tournament. So let me start off with, so Dr. Reibold has gone to China. He's like the grandfather of debate in China, mm-hmm. Dr. Gary Reibold at Irvine Valley College. And uh, he has gone to China for many years, and he's like the godfather there. So when you talk about debate and debate publications in China, Dr. Reibold's like probably, if he's the not guy. the top, yeah. Him and, and Dr. Johnson, Steve Johnson from Alaska, highly published. And of course, John Meany and Kate Schuster's books are all over the place over there right. uh, too, because they're just so prolific in debate. And so you're going to find these names, these consistent names, right? So they're publishing it. So they asked this uh, Noel Zaleski when he was uh, running the iDebate or uh, I'll just call it iDebate for now, but that's not the name. It was the People Speak or something. They sent uh, Gary to China. Gary invites me to be a team teach uh, with him. I graduated. Uh, uni- no, I have not yet. Gra- no, I haven't graduated university. So I'm still an undergrad, and I'm going to team teach with him. And we have uh, 400 Chinese students. We have 400 uh, middle or uh, high school students, and we have 400 university students on two different. Uh, lecture times, and we're going to do the same uh, presentation. So we teach them the fundamentals of debate, and then we invite them to come to a contest. At the contest, we had a language barrier. Uh, Dr. Reibold's topic is that the the standards, I'm talking about car automobile standards, so that we should raise the miles per gallon standard for mm-hmm. automobiles in an attempt to uh, reduce emissions, you know. So it says something should be raised, 
So we should raise tariffs. We should, ra But the problem is, in the English language, raised could also be we raised the building to the ground, mm. which means we destroyed it. Right. So we had p students coming in, and they were both on the same side. Uh. Uh, one of them were saying raising like lifting it up, and the other team was saying it needs to be to raised. Level. We need to do it level. And so uh, we had different interpretations. So we had sometimes had two different teams that thought they were on the same or they thought they were on a different side, but they did. They debated the exact same arguments. Wow. And, and the judges didn't know what to do because there wasn't a lot of training, right? And both of them explained their Double definition. Win. You know, yeah. And so, oh, sorry about it. I just yelled right in the microphone. Yeah, but, you know, and so, yeah, we had that. So that was something, okay? So we innovated and um, we came up with something called the Proctor Room. So the idea was, is that especially for uh, developing, people who are learning English, you know, and they were not native English speakers, we developed this room, but we didn't want to be restrictive in the tournament. So we invited any of the competitors. So we had this international tournament at the time, like 200 teams of public for, or excuse me, of British parliamentary uh, debate. Mm -hmm. And so we had uh, just this great turnout and it's one of the largest they've ever done. And Dr. Reibold hand tabs it, which is oh really funny. Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> And so he's got 200 teams, he's got like 600 competitors and he's got you know, all these things. And, That's insane. And he's just, yeah, and he's hand tabbing the whole thing, you know? So it's like, I come in, hey, Gary, he's like, get out of here. Yeah, I'm <laughs> sure. Right. And so anyway, that's kind of a fun story in itself. Uh, but okay. So um, if you want, I have a really fun, uh, the guy that dropped his pants yeah. was also in the audience there. <laughs> And out of in front of like four to six hundred people, he got up and started ar arguing with Dr. Johnson, who was doing the judges' orientation, and said that is a terrible way to to teach people how to evaluate debates, and and started like yelling at Dr. So Dr. Johnson got a microphone, he's talking, it's like six hundred people, and he's just trying to help them understand the the you know the evaluation, basics. the basics of judging, and then here's this individual who gets up and starts yelling at him. You know, and so I went and interceded and I, and I'm talking to him and I'm trying to like calm down, you know? And so I did all the, like, I just reflected back his concerns back to him. Mm -hmm. And there's like a sales technique that you use in, and you know, service, customer service. So I'm just using this technique. I'm just trying to deescalate or whatever. Right. I agree. Or, now here's the thing. I got him to model my behavior to the point where he went from shouting to like concern to like, we were whispering with each other. And then finally I've got my hand on his shoulder and I'm just saying, I, you know, I just, I, I completely, hear I hear you. And I'm, I'm just listening. And I, I, I just let him talk himself out yeah. and he's done. He's spent. Yeah. Right. And I said, wow. Okay. Well, I'm definitely going to, you know, take this to the tournament head. You know, remember I'm like one of the team teachers. I'm something, right. Yeah. I'm definitely going to uh, fall through. I just want you to, you have my word. I'm going to fall through. But I said, uh, do you think we agree? We could probably just apologize to Dr. Johnson. Just tell him that we didn't really mean to embarrass him in front of 600 people. Or said, oh, of course, of course. And then he comes down, you know, Dr. Johnson's like, doesn't know whether it's like fight or flight. Yeah. Here comes the guy that was yelling at him, <laughs> you know, and he doesn't know whether to run or to stay. Or to stay. Because he doesn't know that, yeah. that the guy's coming up to apologize. You know, so anyway, that's kind of a fun kind of story there. Like I'm trying to think. So I'm just like talking him down, and then you know, and so the watching him walk up to the to the <laughs> stage and looking at, at Steve Johnson's face and not knowing whether or not this guy is, is going to do violence or not, right? Or drop his pants, which hadn't <laughs> happened yet. That which happens about two years yet. <laughs> okay, so anyway, um, I'll get back on point. Uh, so we have this Proctor Room. It's our innovation, and this is an international competition, which means that we have students from the United States. We have students from throughout Asia, China mostly, but, you know, of all these teams. So who do you think comes to the uh, Proctor Room, my room? You know, all these students uh, from the West Coast California school 
And so they're sitting in the back of the room and they're listening to me do the, I got to be fast. They only have 20 minutes to prepare. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to take five minutes. I'm going to tell them overview, a few statistics and just kind of help get them started. Right. And so these other people are just taking copious notes of all the things I'm telling the, the non-native speakers and, and they're fine. They're invited to be there. And so um, I told them what the definitions were. I was warning them about possible interpretations that could cause a challenge, could lead to knifing as a concept in British parliamentary where you like con- one of the teams contradicts the same side by uh, you're supposed to be consistent. The first team comes up, they have a point of view, and then you're supposed to come up and kind of be supportive. So if you do something where they interpret the resolution one way and you've interpreted it differently and you go with a contradictory interpretation, it's called knifing. knifing. Yeah, hmm. you have knifed them. And so it's a very violent metaphor, but it's a fun thing to mention. So anyway, just ask uh, people and in front of your parents or something. They said, I heard that in British parliamentary debate, there's a lot of knifing that goes on that people actually <laughs> you know, knife the person. And then the person who does British parliamentary will join in and hmm. say, oh yeah, it happens all the time. And your parents look aghast <laughs> you know, because they, they think it's an actual knife. So uh, back to the um, one more t- the last time. Okay, the question was: Do you find when you were teaching in China that there was a lot of of uh, problems with uh, manipulation and, and ethical behavior? The pri- I don't want to use their names because that would be embarrassing to them. So I just leave that out. But say that particular team used my watch out for this as part of their strategy for manipulation. Uh. And then they were advancing, and so they made it into the quarterfinals. And I was really disappointed because they were taking a lot of my ideas and using it against uh, the other students, which I thought was fine. But they didn't really need that kind of help like the other people were, and they were asking questions that were way over the head of a lot of the the people that had a legitimate need to be in that room. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to be swear, but no problem, right? They would get up, and this one uh, young man, he would address the audience, and he'd say, well, there's a 32.3 reduction in manpower when you make change, blah, 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 blah. You know, and I kept begging my debaters. uh, This is one of my top debaters at the time that I'm coaching. And um, I said, would you please ask a point of information? People are just sitting there like a bump on the log. We have to ask points of information because you don't get a crossfire. You don't get a cross-examination. This is your chance to challenge someone. So you say, on that point, that's pure John Meany textbook, Mm -hmm. on that point. And so they would say, on that point, he says, yes. He says, where is, what is the source of the 32.3% people or reduction in manpower or whatever? Where did you get that from? Could you share where that is? And are you sure 32.3% was the correct figure? And the guy says, well, I'm just generalizing. <laughs> this is pretty specific generalization. Yes. And so that's the ethical concern. Uh, they want to win so badly that he's sitting there. And for the, uh, round the, bre- after round. the, the break round the quarters and now the semis, perhaps I think it was semis is going to finals. And so, um, there, he's just making up statistics all the way. And then finally, just like a balloon, I tell him, you say, you just, you're popping the balloon. So you just got to catch them in one of the statistics Mm -hmm. and do an, uh, and, uh, now she did it incorrectly. The way I teach students to do an evidence challenge is where's your evidence that says that there's this 32.3% loss of productivity because my Harvard evidence or this Harvard study, or okay, it doesn't have to be Harvard, but I have a credible source that says that it actually increases productivity because, and you give a warrant, you know, a reason because of the, and so you're supposed to do a comparison. And then the conclusion is, are you sure you got that right? Or would you allow me to see that so I can just double check that real quick? And then the person will pretend to look for it or what they don't have it. You know, they're making it up, but you just, you get a 
feel for that. But you have to do an evidence comparison. You just can't say, are you sure they said that? Yes, they did. I like that. And I don't think, I, I don't coach my students to do that, but I think I'm going to start. I like that because- yeah, Don't if, demand, where's your evidence? Let me see your evidence. Instead say, where's your evidence that says blank? Because I have evidence that says blah, 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 because of this that reason. That says blank. Yeah. Yeah. And if for nothing else, mm. it gives you a chance to clarify where you stand yes. and really makes a bigger impact to the judge. So- you're no longer making an accusation right. in a uh, forceful manner. It's Where's not an your evidence? It's not accusatory. Instead, you're Let's get to the inviting Let's get to the, them. The, the bottom of this problem. Yeah, yeah, we're inviting them. Says, "Wow, that's really inconsistent with what I've read." Right. Can Can you help me out here? Can I see that? Yeah. As opposed to show me your evidence. First off, do you have evidence for that? I Follow like up that. question. Can I see that evidence? And then person, this is okay, my teaching. Um, I said, hey, ask them to wait for prep time. Tell them, said at the beginning of prep time, yeah. I'll immediately you know, show you this. But can we use Crossfire to argue the issues yeah. instead of, right, where evidence comes from? But if they did that, we would be very happy as an academy if someone said, Oh, Bill, I'm going to steal that from you. Oh, please sure. do. Yeah. Uh, I would, I would love it if more teams would use that because I want us to be more education focused in Crossfire yeah. or argument centric. And so I tell my debate students this, you don't remember where you got it from, but you believe it's true and it's based on evidence. So make the claim, mm -hmm. you know, because you know that you have evidence backing up. You can't tell me right now exactly where it comes from, but in your heart, you believe you're speaking the truth and you have evidence based on what you've read that this is true. So go ahead and generalize, but do it from evidence. Don't just naturally contradict someone and then have them catch you in a lie or, right. catch, you know, cause I don't want my students to say anything that's not based in evidence that we've researched. And also uh, between you and me, I'm asking my students much more these days, please double check it. I said, whether it comes from me or it comes from your partner or whatever, please double check it. Cause don't I'm getting older. It's true. Yeah. I forget things, you know, yeah. or whatever, but I make that joke, but I don't write poor quality evidence. I'm just, I'm too good at it now. I've been doing it too long, but I want them to have the attitude that not even the teacher is sacrosanct when right. it comes to where the evidence comes from. I want them to to think independently and say, I don't want to say something that I haven't verified. And I'm actually quoting, a, that's a paraphrase from the debate Bible that Dr. Brushke wrote 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 50. I don't know, man, this guy's a legend. Mm -hmm. I, you know, back in the 1820s, I believe. When, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, but uh, sorry, Dr. Brushke. But, so, but he wrote the debate Bible and he said, when you're doing your work and you're writing your, your briefs, you're writing, writing these shells, you've got to double check the work that other people have done. Sure. You know, and uh, he gives good justification in there. And I, I just, that resonated with me. And so now I just, I just make that part of my core teaching. Even if I'm the one that gave you this evidence book that has a hundred pages, I don't expect you to read a hundred pages of evidence. Sure. Yeah. Or sorry, it's a hundred pieces. Yeah. They're like 30 pages, you know, and it's just all the required articles I assigned and a couple optional articles and a few cherry picked pieces of evidence. I, I just assemble it into a nice booklet for them. And so I say to them, uh, read the table of contents. My table of contents has the tagline and the source. Look for the exciting taglines that just kind of excite you saying, oh man, I'd love to say that in a debate. Highlight that, go to that page, read it, click the link, go to the original, make sure that I didn't misunderstand it when I wrote it mm -hmm. or, or try to understand what comes before and after it because you really want to say this. And I'm telling you, in the debate, if that's your big moment in the crossfire, when you shared this powerful information and what's the other team going to say naturally? They have no answer to it because it's just so powerful. So what do they say to stall for thinking? Where's your evidence? Where's your evidence? And then here you are. Well, um, the uh, yeah. <laughs> you're dust. But if you actually verify it, then you have that extra convincing when you say, I have it right here. Well, you know? one of the things that, to further your point, I always try to illustrate to my students that they're responsible for everything they say in round. You yeah. know, and, and anything that the teacher might say, that sounds good, but 
it's you're responsible for it and it can't just be something that you've heard well bill this is something i want to do i want to move into uh, uh the next part of our interview and it's 10 questions that I ask every guest who comes on the show. All right. So these are, uh, this is what I call the final round. These are 10 okay. survey questions that we ask everybody. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. Are these flash rounds? In other words, do I get like two seconds and go? Two seconds it, and go. It's like a one word thing. It's like, you no, know, not quite like that. Evidence. And I go, false. <laughs> false accusation. <laughs> Crossfire. No, Stalling. But maybe we should add that as a new segment. <laughs> okay. Thank you. All right. Question number one Were you superstitious in speech? No, but I like to pretend that I am because I find it entertaining. <laughs> In what ways do you pretend? I will pretend like I have lucky charms or lucky things, and I'll talk to people about the good luck coming from whatever. And I love pretending to be. Um, I haven't washed these socks at like baseball. You know, oh. I haven't washed these socks in in like three weeks. You know, because they're my lucky socks. I don't want any of the good luck uh, washing off of them. But of and, course you do wash yeah, Of course them. I wash my socks. <laughs> this is national. I'm probably wearing a brand new pair, <laughs> you know? And so I'll say that I'm wearing my lucky underwear. Now, I don't try to go anywhere with that, but I'm just yeah. saying like, uh, wherever, and I just try to make it borderline Funny. inappropriate, but just this non sequitur kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, oh man, glad I wore my lucky underwear. I haven't washed this for a year. I you love know? that. Yeah. Question number two, who is the competitor you most admired? Oh, Wow. That there's just so many of them. So uh, let me use her name again, Audrey Mink. Mm -hmm. I admire her greatly. She's a national champion in, in the events I admire the most. And in the rounds that I faced her, I figured that she is, if not the best debater I faced, among the very best debaters. And I always got either a 29 or a 30 speaker points because I felt like finals had come early. And though she beat me in the majority of rounds that we went head to head, uh, I always felt that my best debating came because I went against someone that I considered one of the best debaters in debate. Mm. I Audrey like Mink. that. Audrey, Audrey Mink. Mink. Yeah. Uh, question number three. What's the most memorable speech you've seen? The memorable speech. Could be a debate. I've seen. Okay. What did you and David yell in that duo you did with the, with the <laughs> poker? Crebulate. Yeah, let okay. it crebulate. Okay. And so, yes, let it crebulate. But I, when you guys were uh, d doing that duo about the poker game and, and just all the howling, and stuff, yeah, that's one of the most memorable speeches. I just remember it was, it was just laugh out loud, hilarious. And I just love watching people just be free. You know, <laughs> I didn't even feel like you guys were reading off of a script. It just seemed like you guys are just naturally just the characters. It was probably something more like that. Okay. Right, very well, well. Thank you very much. That's nice of you I didn't you mean to, to expose you. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure how true that is, but thanks. No, it's one of the most memorable speeches I've seen. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Question number four. How do you explain forensics to somebody who's unfamiliar with it? I try to explain to them that if they want to be able to one day talk their way out of a speeding ticket, <laughs> that they have to learn how to bribe people. And in debate, we bribe people. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but that, uh, let's take that back and just say, the, if I'm teaching somebody forensics, I just say, uh, we want people to collaborate well with each other and work well. So how can we argue with each other in a way that we're still friends and we're still respect each other at the end? Right. And I'd say that debate has that opportunity to be able to argue the issues, argue passionately, but at the end you can shake hands and so I'd say that's why we want to learn those skills. And that's what we're trying to do. We want to learn how to argue, but still be friends at the end. Number six, has a speech ever caused you to change? A speech caused me to change. Yes. When I stopped sneaking into two rounds and just start quoting Gilligan's Island, I realized that at some point I have to start following the rules. And so uh, let's just say that uh, I would go into 
platform speeches with not a word having been written, and I will just impromptu my way through communication analysis. And it just wasn't right. My community college teacher was frustrated. My high school teacher was frustrated because of laziness and immaturity. So it changed my life. When I started to coach and started to become serious uh, with it, it changed me because at this point, I don't want anybody else writing my speech. I want to write it. I want to write it well. And then I want to reflect the values and professionalism that I think will inspire my students. But if I just tell them all these stories about, you know, bluffing and faking my way through it, I think it makes me a worse person as well as a a lesser coach. Hmm. Question number seven, what did you do with your rewards? Half of them got thrown away when my, I was teaching in Korea and my, my mother passed away. And when that happened, my brother came up and my grandparents were very proud of my achievements. So they took my trophies and put them in a cabinet in the closet. And so my brother threw them out. Uh, So (laughs) I have a bunch of nationals trophies or whatever that did get put into a box into some other place. Maybe he was still upset that you scored higher than him on that one test. Yeah, in the Navy. Navy test. Uh, That's a good point. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't think about that. I'll have to call him, you know, after this and ask him. But you said you still have some. I still have some. And so they're in a box. And I thought that uh, I've been living in the same place now for about five years. Mm -hmm. And I have a nice uh, studio apartment in uh, right on the border of Tustin. In Irvine is very close to work and it's great. I always kind of meant to kind of put the trophies out or maybe in my office at Magnet, maybe I put the trophies up or whatever. I just never get around to doing it. I keep thinking that there's a permanent home for me. I'm going to buy a house. or I'm gonna, I thought, okay, well, maybe I might display some of the hardware and then I just never really get around to it. And so it just sits in a box. So I can visualize it right now. I actually have a hutch over my desk and there's a nice size box that just barely fits on the hutch and it's just full of trophies and, and things. And well, uh, maybe I, this podcast will be the inspiration for you to finally put them up. It, it could be. I am maybe lying. Not. <laughs> I am lying to you right now, but did you notice I'm nodding my head enthusiastically and say, yes, yeah, uh, sure, this podcast sure has good. changed my behavior. <laughs> has there ever been a podcast that's changed you? Yes. Okay. Question number eight, what speech skill do you use most often in your day-to-day life? Mm-hmm. Asking questions that relate to the point of what the person's saying so I understand it, as opposed to asking questions because it's conversational. Mm. So a lot of times the questions will be just, oh, hey, how is it going or whatever. That's pretty casual, you know, and I still do that. But I would say that uh, really trying to understand. It's not cross-examination. It's just this idea of being able to ask a question in a non-threatening way to make sure you really want me to do that. And then it invites an opportunity for me to maybe voice an objection or, or some sort of, of can raise a concern, mm-hmm. you know. So if you ask the question in the wrong way or if you start by just refuting, I think that that leads to the potential for destructive relationships in the workplace. Mm. And if I think if you want to really have the respect of others, this comes from the teaching in the Seven Habits of Highly Pe- uh, Effective People. Uh, Dr. Covey says, uh, first, uh, seek to understand before you seek to be understood. And by showing people respect and letting them go first and explain themselves and then genuinely pay attention. Don't just be thinking about right, your rebuttal, right. but like really listening. I would say the listening skill of like asking questions that lead to understanding so that if I do have an objection, then I can make the objection and I think I'll be better uh, received 
because I did it in a more respectful way. Mm-hmm. Or if I'm in agreement with the person, uh, then I like to do that uh, that verification and then maybe add a little bit of like, I really like that idea and give another, you know, kind of like a support mm-hmm. because then I find that affirming, you know. Yeah. And so someone is going to do so. So I want to ask questions and listen and, and then uh, try to speak. I'm not 100% perfect, but I've gotten so much better. I think good. debate has a lot to do with that. Wow. All right, question number nine. Why didn't you quit? Why didn't I quit at what? Or is that the purpose of the question? I think so, Okay. Why didn't I quit? Well, I used to tell people that we would talk about the word tenacity. And I said, if you look up the word tenacity in the dictionary, it's actually a picture of a dog with a Frisbee. You know? (laughs) And it's this, so why don't you quit? I think it's the same reason. It's, It's in my nature. And I think that I really have passion for what I'm doing with regard to the debate. And I don't quit because I've never treated coaching debate like it was ever a job. I've done it for non-pay for a longer period than I did it for pay. And I don't quit because it would be like, why do you continue to breathe? <laughs> you know, I breathe because that's my life, yeah. you know, air. I need to breathe. Uh, doing debate, I just, I need to be involved in it in some way, I think not in a codependent, unhealthy way, but rather it's just become such a part of my life and I have a lot of passion for it. I don't want to quit. At this, at this I point, would never retire. At this point, when you're, and, and this is not the next question, but just a question I have for you. At this point in your life, if you were told you, you could no longer do debate, but you could coach IEs, would you be satisfied with that, just doing IEs and not doing debate? Yes. Um, yes. Could you find I satisfaction could. in that is what I'm saying? Yes, definitely. And a lot of people are surprised at my background in theater that they don't know it because they just they kind of associate me with debate. I really enjoy the IEs mm. and I enjoy helping people to make the program as intellectual as possible to complement the performance rather than simply what justification can I give you so that I am now able to perform the following piece. Mm-hmm. And so this is always that intro, that that nice little hook. And so teaching people how to do effective and uh, I almost said impromptu. Uh, oh, that would be an IE. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about that. I, I limited prep. I just equate to debate. So yes, I can I can be very happy as a limited prep coach who also teaches uh, theater to students, and I can find a great deal of satisfaction. I would miss debate heavily though, mm. and I would definitely feel. Uh, restricted, but yes, if if I was an IE coach from this moment on, I could find a great deal of satisfaction because I have so much respect oh, for the forensics events. All right, question number ten. This is my my favorite question. All right, what's the best speech advice you've ever received? <clears throat> Please stop talking. <laughs> uh, do you want to elaborate, it, or do you want to just leave it at that? I, I will only say just a, a tiny bit more, a uh, little bit more on that. I talk beyond the point, like the sale. They say in sales, I talk beyond the sale all the time. So they said, just stop. I think it's a relational thing. I, I perhaps have a persecution complex or just something about mm-hmm. me where I feel like I need to keep speaking to either have a form of control yeah. or I keep speaking to be understood so that you understand my motives. Yeah. Just stop talking. Please stop talking. Yeah, just please stop talking. So, but it really was the advice. It was really good advice. 
because I do overexplain. <laughs> that's so nice. Uh, Bill, that's it, man. You went through the ringer. So great to have you. Um, if, if anybody's listening and they want to try to find you, how can they find you? Do, they, do you have an Instagram or a Twitter or Facebook or anything like that that people might be able to find you on? I do. I'm Bill Eddy. And if you were to Google me, you'll find me associated with magnetacademy.com. I'm known as Coach Bill at magnetacademy.com. And that's the probably the best way. I just don't use the social media the way a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. I have my LinkedIn account and things, but I don't really social like on Facebook or anything like that. And mm-hmm. I don't have an Instagram account yet. So ability at magnetacademy.com if someone wanted to reach me. And I love talking about forensics. So even if some stranger were to someone who I don't know said, oh, I was interested in something. I'm happy to explain things or, or respond to an unsolicited email Wonderful. as long as they weren't selling me something at the end. Like <laughs> yeah. you know, and we're having this Amway meeting this weekend. I'd love to have you speak to our group. Well, we do have an Instagram account and a Twitter account. So if you want to find our podcast there, you can find us at Forensic Podcast. Bill, thanks so much for coming in. It's been great talking to you. So until the next round, keep talking. And as Bill Eddy says, please stop talking. I'm from an actress. Oh, yeah. Cause if you're not somebody Must show you how you got the same Funkin' old world charm I don't know where you come from But you're perfect for the part